How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shot, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Gary, you said that so fast, like you were just trying to rush through it uh, in, in an attempt to get these episodes just a little bit shorter. <laughs> like we're just gonna, <laughs> gonna just gonna run through these notes like we're that the micro machine man. Remember that guy? I feel like people, <laughs> new listeners, will see how long the episode is, and then already it's daunting. And then my intro, if it goes longer than like ten seconds, they're gonna be like, "Oh, come on, dude, <laughs> it's gonna turn it off." Up. <laughs> anyway, I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. I got something I want to show you. It's long, it's sleek, it's powerful. It's our fifth episode of our examination of the life and career of John Waters and his collaborations with Divine in our series titled Divine Filth. So for those who have been just uh, following along with us so far, I, I saw de- uh, the, what movie is this? Polyester DVD has an <laughs> yeah. interview with, uh, I think that's where I saw it, with John Waters and Tom Snyder. And I love that interview just because I can't, if it's not on there, it was on YouTube. I, I'm lost already. I think it is. I think it is on the Criterion release. Anyway, it's Divide and John Waters. And mm-hmm. uh, they're sitting there. And Tom Snyder obviously does not understand them. That's not, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> no way. As soon as you said Tom Snyder, I was like, I will go find this interview. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny. And it's it's also like if you see Divide in any of these, uh, just on a whole other tangent, just with Letterman or Snyder. The Letterman whoever, one's great. Nobody understands Divide. So it's like, are you a transvestite? <laughs> what are you? Like, you know, yeah. it's just like stuff now where people would be like, dude. No, no, you can't say that. Just <laughs> no. No, you can't do that. I just love Waters trying to explain that he's a guy who's like, I, I'm trying to make you laugh at stuff you normally wouldn't like and uh, <laughs> would normally put you off. Yeah. And, and he describes it. He was like, well, What do you mean? He's like, well, Like in this movie, we've got a scene where uh, trick or treaters go to a house, and when the lady doesn't have candy, they murder her. <laughs> and the audience laughs. <laughs> And he's like, see, it's funny. It's funny. You wouldn't laugh if it was you wouldn't laugh if it was your mom, but it's no. funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because like it's happening on screen, you know. It's funny to think about that happening because it's so absurd. But if that were to happen in real life, that would be very sad and fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Snyder, yeah. Snyder's like got this like, uh, I'm not sure I get it. The John Waters is like, oh, if I walk down the street and I go to get a newspaper and I see a car accident. That's better if there if than if there wasn't one because at least something happened, you know. <laughs> and he's still like, 
No, no, just me. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, those interviews are great. Every John Waters interview is worth watching. Honestly, if you just happen across any John Waters interview, it's going to be entertaining. If you find it, no matter who's interviewing them, uh, there are several on that Criterion release that are just just really wonderful. I think so. Despite the fact that Desperate Living, uh, for all intents and purposes, was was kind of a flop. I didn't make any money. Uh, New Line was still encouraging Waters to write a new film because New Line, you see, they were working to break into film production as opposed to simply being a film distributor as they had been since their inception back in 1967. Uh, They'd already dipped their toe into the world of film production with Mark L. Lester's Stunts, which was released in 1977, uh, the same year as Desperate Living. Stunts had not been a critical success, but it did make some decent money for New Line in international markets and on television. And after that, New Line was like, they were all in. They were officially in the film production business. And since they had an existing relationship with Waters, they were willing to help fund his next film. But there was a caveat. You see, New Line understood that Waters' films were niche, you know, Uh, even though really all of them, with the exception of uh, Desperate Living, had found their audience. It was still like a very specific audience. They weren't like reaching the the masses. They weren't playing in shopping mall movie theaters, you know. Uh, But if New Line was going to put some big money into future Waters films, then they needed him to write something that mainstream audiences could identify with. He needed the he needed to be able to tell a good story that. Uh, normal people could relate to. So while doing interviews to promote Desperate Living, Waters started mentioning some of the ideas that he had for his next film. Uh, And he had two scripts in mind. One was a parody of classic Hollywood love stories. And the other one was a more quote unquote commercial script idea that he had that needed a 15 year old girl uh, in his words with experience and pimples. Uh, But that of course is a story that we will get to later on. Uh, Speaking to the Tampa Tribune in November of 1977, Waters said, my next movie is going to have an R rating. It's going to be a love story, and I hope to do it in smellovision. vision In that same interview, he'd go on to say, I'd like to get away from the X-rated stuff and make movies that are a lot less gross. Otherwise, I just paint myself into a corner. But on the other hand, I don't want to make Benji either. There was an uh, interview with the, like, called a newsreel that I saw, too, where they were like uh, asking him, what, what's, what's polyester like? And he said, it's, a, it's basically a comedy, sort of like Father Knows Best, God Berserk. Uh, he's, it's different this time around as I had more money to make it 35 millimeter, bigger crew, tab hunter stuff. We'll talk about, he says, uh, it doesn't have an X rating. Uh, we got an R rating, but it's the same kind of movie. I think it's got an outrageous sense of humor, but it has very little nudity, no four letter words because I'm so sick. Well, first of all, nudity in my films, people want the characters to put their clothes back on, not take them. (laughs) I don't think anybody comes to any of my movies to get sexually aroused. (laughs) <laughs> uh, is there a, there's not even any a little bit of nudity in this movie is there i i, can, I don't remember i assume maybe i the clo- missed or just forgot but the closest you get is like mink and lingerie but there's no nudity that i can remember i don't remember yeah. anything right off the and i've watched it i watched it this morning so like it's fresh and fresh in the mind but yeah i can't think of i i remember seeing that i might have seen that exact quote somewhere but i remember seeing that and thinking is there nudity in this but maybe it was in a previous cut of the movie or something. Well, it, it would take another three years for Waters to pull together the money for his next film. But once he did, he'd end up creating not only his first R-rated movie, but his first movie to skirt the mainstream. And that film and the subject of today's episode is, of course, Polyester. Can't you do that later? 
I'm missing valuable shopping time. Mother, please, I'll be out in a second. I don't know why you bother. You've always retained your fluids. <laughs> On the road. I seen it, man. I seen this weird looking dude run right out and stomp on his honky lady's feet. Oh, pretty, pretty little angel eyes. You dance lewdly for the boys at lunch period? Quarter, I will. Stop that dancing. Don't be upset, Mrs. Fishball. Puberty brings on strange behavior in adolescence. The spoiler problem is way out of hand, and the Baltimore County School Board has decided to expel spoilers from this entire public podcast system. I'm afraid a spoiler warning is the only answer. It is the opinion of CinemaShock that Dexter is criminally insane. What, what does Dexter have to do with a spoiler warning? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad I, I thought about changing it, and I was just like, no, no, it's yeah, we're just gonna leave it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was confused, but I just assumed I was just being dumb. I have a story yeah. about me being dumb for I I, I I don't put it past me. I'll tell you a story later that you'll all think I'm dumb. So all right. <laughs> I mean we already do, but we we love further evidence. I so. appreciate it. Well, I'm gonna give you <laughs> solid concrete evidence that in the in the telling of this movie. All right, good. I mean I'm looking forward to it. Once he'd completed the script for Polyester, Waters turned it into New Line, and although they had made the offer to help fund his next film, uh, the burgeoning studio was still a little bit reluctant. Because, see, New Line, they wanted, they wanted a gory horror movie for the next film that they would produce. They didn't want another high-concept satire uh, like they that like Waters had given them in the past. Remember, this is the early 1980s, and the slasher movie is king at this time. This is like 1980-ish, 19, uh, 1981. Uh, so the slasher movies genre is huge thanks to the successes of movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and most recently, Friday the 13th. New Line really wanted a piece of that, the slasher movie pie, which of course we know that they will eventually get just a few years later when they produce A Nightmare on Elm Street for Wes Craven. But see, John Waters, uh, one thing we've learned about John Waters is that we know that he is a good salesman. Uh, he's a great salesman. And he brought New Line this idea that he had that he thought that they would go for that he called Odorama, uh, which was his version of the smell vision gimmick that he'd been talking about since 1977. And he was right. You know, Bob Shea, Robert Shea, uh, the head of New Line, he loved the idea of Odorama. He thought that this was a gimmick that New Line could use to excite the press about the film and, you know, maybe even sell a few more tickets with it. You see, you got a lot of things to thank Bob Shea for. Like, this is one of them, and then, like, the Freddy stuff. He gave one us Lid Shea. Well, he didn't give us Lid Shea, I guess. No, his, his parents did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At Lord of the Rings, I mean, you, yeah. Robert Shea was still the head of New Line. At, uh, he should have made a, he should have made a John Waters horror movie. I mean, that uh, he should have made that happen. Yeah, I don't think that John Waters, I don't know that John Waters would want to make a horror movie. But although some people do categorize, I, I've seen multiple maniacs categorized it as horror in some places. And I don't understand that really, other than Divine kind of going crazy at the end. But it's not a horror movie. It is, there's gore a little bit, but you no know, more than it's like just serial mom. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So John Waters, uh, he was certainly not the first person to try to work 
smells into the movie watching experience. If you want to track the evolution of this gimmick, you can actually go all the way back to 1906 when a theater owner in Pennsylvania replaced, or he, he placed a wad of cotton wool that had been soaked in rose oil in front of an electric fan during a newsreel about the Rose Bowl game. Several other gimmicks were used over the years, but they were always em- employed by the theater owners. They weren't like created by the the film directors, the film producers. They were never really intended to be part of the movies themselves. For the record, I don't think Waters ever claims to be the first or anything like that. And one oh, he doesn't. No, he he first saw it as a gimmick in a film festival in Germany, mm-hmm. and it always stuck with him because the the audience went wild for it there. His idea, he said, also was uh, when people ask him about it in all these interviews, he says that he he had seen a review once that said, "If you see a John Waters film on a marquee, hold your nose and walk on the other side of the street." And he said uh, he thought, "Well, if that's what you already think, I'm really gonna do it here." Walt Disney was actually the first filmmaker to explore the idea of actually including scents with a film when he was working on Fantasia, which is, what, 1940, 1941? Uh, But he eventually decided against it because it was going to just be too expensive. The gimmick was successfully used for the first time by two competing movies released within a month of each other in December of 1959 and January of 1960. This is like, you know that thing where like Armageddon and Deep Impact came out like the same summer? Has that just yeah, been going yeah. on since the beginning of movies where like two very similar concepts just come out at the same time? Because that's what happened here. We had two completely independent films being produced that both had the idea to incorporate smells and they came out within a month of each other in the late 1950s, early 60s. Isn't that wild? I remember when I, wor- <laughs> I remember working at a video store and, and just rem- remembering that happening like with those movies and like like Dante's, Dante's Inferno and he, Volcano. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, or Dante's yeah. Peak. Yeah, Dante's Peak. I don't know what the deal was. I feel like there was more, and I can't think of them off the top of my head. But there, yeah. yeah, just these weird same type of movie came out. Yeah, at the same time. So very, very strange. Well, the first of these two movies was called uh, Behind the Great Wall. It's a travelogue about China, which used a uh, process that was dubbed Aroma Rama, which pumped smells through the theater's air conditioning system. The other one, and you'll hear John Waters mention both of these in interviews about polyester. The other one was called A Scent of Mystery, which used a more complex system called Smellovision. Now, Smellovision used scents on a sort of, con- it's, it's a lot more complicated. It's, a, it's on this sort of conveyor belt that's attached to the projector. They called it the smell brain. And it allowed them to be released, the, the smells themselves to be released from perfume containers Uh, as the film threaded through the projector at certain moments. So like as the film in the projector hit like a moment, it would trigger this machine to release a certain smell. Now, when I say that this was the first time that this type of gimmick was used uh, successfully, I only mean that the movies were actually released in theaters with these gimmicks attached to them. Uh, The movies and uh, from pretty much all accounts, the experiences themselves were far from successful. First of all, the cost was very prohibitive since the complex smell systems had to be installed in every single theater that wanted to show these movies. Like, that's a lot. The cost to install Smell-O-Vision, uh, the system that was used for Scent of Mystery, was anywhere from 15000 to a $1 million. And this is in 1960s dollars. So Ooh. that's the equivalent of 148000 or $9.8 million when adjusted for inflation. So that's like, a, that's a ridiculous cost. And granted, you're probably thinking, hey, this is going to be the new gimmick, like 3D. So we're going to put this in theaters. We're going to spend a million dollars on it. And then we'll be able to use it for movies that come out for years to come. Because this movie is going to be a big success. And it's going to kick off a wave of smelly movies, which didn't happen. 
<laughs> well, on top of that, the experience of watching the movies sucked uh, from what it sounds like. According to Variety, when they wrote about it, the, when the aromas were released from the smell-o-vision system, they were accompanied by a distracting hissing noise. And depending on where you were sitting in the theater, the smells could sometimes reach you several seconds after the action was shown on screen, which kind of kills the whole experience. And mm. then they had problems getting the smells out of the theater for subsequent screening. So unless you were like at the first showing of the day, you were walking into a movie theater that was just filled with a, a bunch of scents that were just jumbled together into one big smelly mess. They couldn't get them out. So <laughs> although New Line liked the idea of using Odorama, they needed to brainstorm a more practical way of getting smells into theater goers' noses. Which, uh, by the way, first idea was John Waters uh, pitched that a drag queen would literally come and fart in your face during certain moments of this film. <laughs> so that, that was just well, unpractical. <laughs> well, that only works for... That only works for one of them. When it works for number two, <laughs> maybe the smelly shoes. Maybe that one could work that way. <laughs> so one of the marketing people at New Line had the idea to use scratch and sniff cards, which was a somewhat new technology at the time. It was a had been invented or at least patented by the 3M Corporation, who had a full library of ready-to-go scents. So they didn't have the extra added expense of having to create new scents for the movie. They were just going to use the library. Once they decided that this was the direction to go, Waters wrote scratch-and-sniff scenes into the film based on the existing 3M smell library. Although they did have to make certain concessions because, you know, shockingly, 3M did not have a fart smell in their library. So they used... Uh, an existing rotten egg smell instead. He says part Those of that in the commentary. Plan, plan to fail. That's right. And uh, he says in the commentary <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> what are you laughing at that I just went with it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> in the commentary, he says that the real thing was like, that he wasn't considered a safe director at this time. And he said, so they had to lie to 3M Company. They said they were a kid's movie. Yeah. And so then he said they had to make up since, you know, like for what they were doing. Yeah. Like the, the rock. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, they didn't, they didn't tell them that they were going to use it for a fart scene basically. Cause right. John Waters at this time. Yeah. He's, he's made uh, his last movie was desperate living. Like he hasn't made a mainstream or any, anything even remotely close to the mainstream. So he was still sort of considered toxic to like a big you know, conservative corporation like 3M. So they didn't want to like tell them that, hey, this is for the new John Waters movie. So New Line, during this early development on this, they seem to be uh, very enthusiastic about the film and about the Odorama gimmick. The only problem was uh, New Line was still a very young company and their pockets were not very deep. So they, they didn't really have the cash to fund the movie fully on their own. So, you know, despite some enthusiasm, they were still kind of dragging their feet. That is until the film caught the attention of a producer named Michael White. So Michael White was a British theater and film producer. He was kind of known for producing cult stage and film productions. Uh, so while in England, where he was from, he produced the original stage production of the Rocky Horror Show. And then he went on to produce the feature film version of that show, along with other cult films like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, Jabberwocky, Terry Gilliam's first movie, and My Dinner with Andre. And he had been a fan of Waters' previous films. He was a big fan of Divine. So he offered to partner with New Line to fund the film. And with White on board as a producer, New Line was ready to greenlight the film with a set budget of $300,000, which is nearly five times what Desperate Living had cost. You could tell. Yeah, yeah. You, you could see it on the screen for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, there were, however, some concessions that came along if New Line was going to give Waters this much money. For one, 
the film had to have at least one real name star, somebody that audiences would recognize. The movie also had to feature Divine. This was a requirement not just for New Line, but for Michael White as well. If he was going to produce the film, he wanted to produce a Divine film. The movie had to get an R rating from the MPAA, which had never happened on a John Waters movie before. They'd all gotten X ratings prior to this. Uh, it had to have an original movie score, which he had on Desperate Living, you know, so that's not unknown territory. And it had to have professional production values, meaning that it needed to be shot on 35 millimeter film, another thing that's never been done on a John Waters movie. And John Waters was not allowed to operate the camera himself. They were not going to let him do that. They wanted a professional cameraman and a professional cinematographer. Now, it took a little bit of convincing to get Waters to give up control of the camera. Uh, however, in the years since Desperate Living, the two or three years since that movie was made, uh, a new technology had emerged called Video Assist, which allowed a black and white video feed from film cameras to be played back on a video monitor and recorded on small VHS recorders. This would allow the director to watch everything the camera was recording and even replay it. I know... To, to some of our younger listeners, uh, this sounds very quaint by today's standards when we can just replay any video we want on our phones, pull up something on YouTube. Like it's, it's, it, it seems like very, like ancient technology, which I guess kind of by today's standards is. But in the early 1980s, this was groundbreaking because video was just becoming a thing, period. So this was like a, a miraculous mm. uh, achievement in film technology, kind of like when, uh, when digital film started like it was it's that big of a leap in technology and film production i remember somebody saying like uh, it was like doug benson or something talking about with like video cassettes like you could rent tapes or buy tapes you know for your mm -hmm. vcr first time but it was like it was like i bought like i forget what he said he bought but it was like 90 dollars for the yeah. tape or something like that yeah the, the the back before like you could buy vhs tapes just you know at walmart or wherever when video stores had to buy them f directly from the studios, they were paying hundreds of dollars per tape. They weren't available for just regular retail unless you wanted to pay those kind of prices for them. So when Robert Mayer brought John uh, John Waters along to a Robert Mayer being the production manager on this one, when he brought John along to a TV commercial shoot to see this new technology in action, Waters was immediately in love with it. The, the new technology meant that a skilled professional could operate the camera without John feeling like he was giving up too much control. It would also mean that amateur little mistakes like wobbly zooms or shots going out of focus, things we've seen in all of these movies so far, would be a thing of the past. Everything that was charming. Yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of other charming <laughs> aspects. <laughs> uh, the director of photography for Polyester would be a guy named David Inslee. Now, Inslee, I don't think I don't think we've talked about him yet, but he was another part of Waters' regular Baltimore crew. He'd been working with them since Female Trouble, where he was the assistant camera operator. Uh, he worked on that and on Desperate Living as an assistant camera operator. And he had uh, gained a lot of experience working on local TV productions and commercials in the years between. So he, this is his first movie as a cinematographer, but he does become a cinematographer later on and a camera operator. I mean, he if you look at his filmography, he works on all of John Waters' movies, not always as a cinematographer. Sometimes he's like shooting second unit stuff or he's a, a camera operator on the second unit and things like that. But he works on pretty much all of them. But he works on some pretty big productions as well if you go look them up on uh you know imdb or wherever so one of the first hurdles that the production had to get over was uh, surprisingly getting divine to sign on for the film now since appearing in female trouble divine's stage career had really taken off after appearing in women behind bars that was the off-broadway show that kept divine from appearing in desperate living that we've talked about 
Uh, he also started another off-Broadway comedy called The Neon Woman in 1978 and 1979, and even recorded a couple of singles in the hopes of getting a record contract. So we're really seeing it with Divai. Like, John Waters had always seen it, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, Divai was like, on his way. Like, I remember seeing an interview with John Waters, too, where he was like, divide is what a movie star should be. I think he said, I don't think of John Belushi or Joe Claiborne when I think of a movie star. I think of divide. I can go sit at McDonald's and see people who like those guys. Yeah. Why, why do I pay $4 to look at them? Right. <laughs> for, $4 for a movie ticket, by the way, sounds awesome. That sounds great. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but divide had, uh, has always had the, the riz, as the kids say. The do the kid. What does that mean? The Riz. You got that Riz. Yeah, it's like charisma. kids say that. I've yeah. never heard that term in my entire life. Is that something yeah, that kids are saying like now? Like yeah, like the youngsters, the youngins. <laughs> <laughs> look, look today.com. Like I just googled Riz at today.com right now. If you don't spend time with teenagers, you may have no idea. Riz is short for charisma. Okay, good to know. I'm going to start using it now and really sound like an old fart by using some. Uh, you are teenager <laughs> slang. It'll be in our fucking Discord like ten minutes from now. Uh, yep. <laughs> Just like where I uh, saw right. Justin's review that said, uh, "Talk to me" is an absolute fucking ripper. It is. That's not new slang, Gary. You just haven't it heard is it. To me. Well, same for Riz. <laughs> well, I guess you're right. Well, anyway, so during all of this, when Divine's touring around doing off-Broadway shows and recording songs, uh, he was working with his new manager, a guy named Bernard Jay. So Jay was a theater producer who had moved from England to New York, where he had bought the rights to The Neon Woman, that that off-Broadway show, which is how he and Divine became acquainted. And Divine recognized Jay's skills as a businessman and talked Jay into becoming his agent. Now, Bernard Jay wasn't exactly a fan of the work that Divine had done on Waters films in the past, nor did he think that eating dog shit receiving a rosary job or any of the other depraved stuff that he had done in those films was a recipe for mainstream success. But he did. How did he even become an agent? How is he even an agent? <laughs> he did recognize that's, Divine's that's talent. Lack of, that's lack of vision. <laughs> he did recognize Divine's talent, the it factor, the riz. And he saw Divine's potential to become a multifaceted character actor. I told you it wouldn't take more than 10 minutes. <laughs> so with jay by his side divine took his stage show on the road playing in clubs around the country with an act that mostly consisted of divine insulting the audience between disco songs uh have you seen any of divine's musical performances by the way well go on youtube look them up or if you watch the the documentary i am divine which i highly recommend if you're if you've been listening to this series and you're this far into it clearly you're a fan of john waters and divine Go watch the documentary, I Am Am Divine. There's some really good footage there, but you can find some of it on YouTube. I would recommend looking up the one where Divine performed in England on top of the pops. It's really good. It's a really fun performance to watch. And also, like, the prudes in England made a lot of nasty phone calls to the producers of Top of the Pops for seeing a man dress as a woman performing on their show in the early 1980s. Uh, but it is a fun <laughs> performance. And like Divine is 100% like into it. I mean, it is a full on musical performance and it's very, very fun. Divine's not a great singer. That's not what, how, that's not why people were going to see Divine though. It's because he had the Riz. That's right. 
Um, my favorite one is somebody shared with this on Instagram, or maybe you posted. I don't remember, but it was like divide as Peter Pan. Oh no, I have not, I've not seen that. So <laughs> somebody shared it with us. I think I, I don't think it was Saturday Night Live, but it was something. And and divide is playing. It's on the the wiring and like flies in through the window and is singing and stuff. What? And like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I need to see that. But whoever posted it, I remember it wasn't us that posted it because whoever posted it had post like miss him and had hashtag John Candy. (laughs) 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 So they got that part wrong. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Divine was doing this whole uh, disco tour thing. Like Divine was making pretty decent money doing this. He was getting some good press. He was making some great celebrity connections. If you do a quick Google search, you'll see photos of Divine hanging out with the likes of Mick Jagger, Andy Warhol, Grace Jones, all during this time period, like Divine was going to hanging out at like Studio 54 and stuff. So he's he's in with this kind of cool crowd in the late 70s, early 80s. And while all that's well and good, Divine, as as we know, and as we've discussed, uh, has always been a big spender, even when he didn't have much money to spend. Remember the remember the parties he used to sh- uh, throw like that we talked about, I think, back on Multiple Maniacs, where he just... Uh, sent the bills to like his parents' house until they caught wind of it. <laughs> and so he's always yeah, like yeah. <laughs> spending more than he can make, even though he's making a decent mm-hmm. living. Uh, he's spending more than he can make. As I recall, he also stole a lot. So yeah, 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 he know. did. He did steal a lot too. They all did. Uh, or he would just like run away from his creditors and like move and move in with friends. That's how he ended up living with like David Lockery and stuff is because bill collectors were after him for all the shit that he bought for his parties and stuff. Do you think he was saving money? Yeah, no, he wasn't. He was just spending a lot of money. (laughs) That's all it was. So, uh, you know, so he's, he's totally on board with a steady movie gig for, you know, where he's got steady pay for a few weeks. Uh, it would mean a good paycheck and it would make, mean some good press exposure. He knew that this would, he'd get some write-ups in, in magazines and newspapers, and this would be a further, boost to his career. So when Waters and New Line offered Divine a salary of $5,000 for the film, Divine was down. He's ready to accept that. This is like two months of work for five grand. Uh, He's ready for it. But Bernard Shea balked at the number, saying it was far too low. And uh, Jay kind of knew that he had the producers in a corner. He, He knew that the script was based around Divine. He knew that Michael White's participation as a funding source required Divine to be the star. Uh, I mean, basically, he knew that the studio could not say no if they wanted this movie to get made with Divine. So negotiations between Jay and New Line went on for months until just two weeks before filming was scheduled to begin. New Line finally relented and agreed to a fee of $15,000 plus a share of the profits for Divine. Say what you will, that is why you have agents or or striking actors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the thing is that this, I'm not trying to paint Ber- uh, Jay Bernard as, or uh, Bernard Jay as being greedy or whatever. Like he's, he's looking out for Divine's best interest and his own as well. Cause he probably got 10% of that 15 grand, you know, but uh, everyone, yeah, exactly. And everyone in that, like I am Divine documentary, when they talk about Bernard Jay, they talk about how good of a move partnering with Jay was for Divine's career. So uh, it was, it was a po- very positive thing for him. Now Divine, mm-hmm. For, for his part, relished the role because it gave him a chance to do something completely different from what he had done in previous John Waters movies. Uh, he had been typecast both in these movies and on stage playing vicious women and monsters. But with polyester, he'd have a chance to play a victim and, and a much more sympathetic character. The other casting hurdle was finding a name actor to appear in the film as per the requirements set by New Line. The only problem was 
Like all of Waters' previous films, Polyester was a non-union film. So any actor or agent who was contacted about a role in the film, if they were, you know, if they were in the union, they turned it down as a result. Now we touched on this a little bit in our Desperate Living episode, but if one SAG actor appears in the film, the SAG t- contract requires every actor on the film to also be part of the union, meaning that they all have to be paid a SAG guaranteed wage, which would have added another $250,000 to the budget. And New Line refused to take that kind of risk on what was still considered an underground film. The actor who ended up being cast in the role, the actors that John Waters actually had in mind when he wrote the script, was a semi-retired former 50s teen heartthrob named Tab Hunter. That that name, I was just like, I don't even know who this is. But and like, why John Waters out of everybody would pick him? But it's, it's one of those things where he just like sees certain people... That, I, another quote from him would have been uh, true beauty is when you see someone and say, Oh my God. He said, I don't need an <laughs> actress. That's the unmarried woman who looks like a secretary for me. A leading man is tab Hunter, not John Belushi. And yes, that is the second time. Second already. time that he's talking John- about John Belushi. <laughs> yeah, is, I don't know what his deal is with John Belushi, but two separate quotes where John Belushi is his example of, I don't give a fuck about that guy. <laughs> So although he's mostly forgotten to modern audiences, Tab Hunter was a huge star in the 50s and 60s. Like Gary said, we I, I didn't really know who he was outside of the context of this movie. I've never seen a Tab Hunter movie, but he was huge in the 50s and 60s. He's got to start probably in the in the late mid to late 1940s, but really became a star in the 50s. He even had a music career, which a lot of, you know, kind of, kind of teen heartthrobs did back then. Uh, he had a number one hit single called Young Love that was released in 1957. He was on the cover of like all the teen magazines. He was in all the Hollywood, you know, trade gossip newspapers and all that. He was a big, big deal. Uh, I mean, if you, if you go back and, look at pictures of him or footage from him, you can really see why he was a big movie star. He, he's got this like blonde hair, tan, muscular build, looks like a, a good looking, like clean cut surfer kid, kind of. And in fact, later in like the 60s, after his career was kind of on the decline a little bit, he did make a lot of surf or several surf movies. <laughs> so uh, he kind of fit that image. One of the documentaries had like a poster of him that he was on the front with like drawn, you know, with the pecs and everything. Yeah. It called him America's next Psy guy. Psy guy. I like that line. Like yeah. S-I-G-H. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, like, like, like girls are just looking at him and going, huh, like that. That's what I pictured. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's what I envisioned too. I don't know. That's kind weird. Of, it's I've never heard the, anybody the, called that. It's kind <laughs> of the noise that I make between, between paragraphs. Just, yeah, yeah, uh, it is. Uh, uh, is that what you're doing? You're just sighing at me? And... Yeah. Justin's so dreamy. Justin is so dreamy. <laughs> well, by the time John Waters tracked him down, Tab Hunter was working the dinner theater circuit, where he had become a, a fairly big draw, serenading the older housewives who had been teens during the peak of his popularity. And while he'd appeared in guest roles on a lot of TV shows prior to this, like in the years before Polyester, he hadn't started a feature film in nearly a decade. So Waters, uh, he contacted Hunter. Hunter was in, I think, Indianapolis or somewhere doing a a dinner theater show. And John Waters tracked him down. He called him there uh, in, in Indianapolis. He offered him the role. And he was also sure to let him know that his love interest on screen would be a man in drag. 
Uh, Tab Hunter didn't seem to mind. He was familiar with Divine's work. He was a fan of John Waters' work, and he thought it would be fun to work with Divine and Waters. So he agreed to work on the film for a, ten, a salary of $10,000 for 10 days of shooting. He said John Waters like offered him the role. He's like, my name's John Waters, and I, I'm a filmmaker. And he's like, oh, I'm a huge fan of you. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to do something. And then John Waters is like, are you okay with kissing a 300-pound transvestite? <laughs> he was like yes that's fine I, I don't care his agent was totally opposed to this by the way yeah i didn't think it was a good career move yeah but tab said he thought it that sounded fun and told him i got nothing to lose and everything to gain he just wanted yeah. to have a good time well here's the thing tab hunter he was not out at the time but tab hunter was a gay man uh he was closeted i mean in the 50s and 60s you can understand why because of the culture he actually dated anthony perkins for a long time before psycho so this would have been in the in the 50s him and anthony perkins were a, an item totally in secret of course but tab hunter did not come out publicly until 2005 when he wrote his uh his autobiography so way after i mean what 25 years after polyester so even at the time he was making polyester he was not out as a gay man publicly of course, there was also still the question of whether or not Hunter was uh, a member of the Screen Actors Guild. But Tab himself didn't seem to really know. Uh, it had been, like I said, 10 years since his last film, and he wasn't paying Guild dues anymore, so he assumed he was no longer a, an active member. Uh, at any rate, he wasn't really worried about the union because he didn't see Polyester as a step towards reinvigorating his movie career. Uh, he was just kind of doing it for fun. Uh, and because he wanted to work with Waters and Divine. And he had become perfectly happy working outside of Hollywood. He liked doing the dinner theater thing. He wasn't really planning on doing any movies after this. But just to be sure, they kept Tab's name out of the press until after shooting had completed. Of course, once the movie was released, they kind of had to use Tab's name because that was the whole point of casting a known actor in the role. They, needed the, they wanted the publicity for it. Of course, uh, I, I think... Later on, he said he was in the guild, he found out, but he said he lied through his teeth to them about everything. He'd say, oh, yeah, we, we took breaks for dinner. He said, uh, even though that meant like we were eating cold pizza at 1 a.m. All this screwing around with the guild, I cannot tell how John Waters would look today. <laughs> well, he has said if if you like if you read or if you see more modern interviews with him, like there's a there's a lengthy one. It's about forty minutes long where he's talking to a film critic. I can't remember his name. You you'd know him if you saw him. Uh, on the Criterion Blu-ray. It's a really great conversation between the two. And he talks a little bit about it on there. And he says that like he is he's pro-union. But at the time, when he was making these non-union films, he was more kind of scared of them because he didn't understand. Now he says he wishes that these were all union films because uh, it would have made his life a lot easier, for one thing, even though the, obviously the movies would have cost a lot more. But he, uh, he just at the time didn't quite didn't he wasn't anti-union at the time he just was scared of them and didn't understand he thought it would make it harder for him to get his little cheap you know inexpensive low budget movies made which it would have made it more difficult the polyester is the first film where most of the original dreamlanders appear in bit parts instead of lead roles every episode we've talked about you know all of the this the same cast of people and they're all like the stars of this film it's the same group of names almost every single time but this time they're all in like kind of little bit parts, almost cameos sometimes. Uh, Mary Vivian Pierce, who of course had a major starring role or co-starring role in all of Waters' films before this, only has a, a really like a one scene cameo really as a nun. She's the yeah. nun who comes to take Lulu away. Her and uh, Sharon Nisp are the nuns. And then uh, Polyester would also end up being the last Waters film to feature longtime Dreamlanders Cookie Muller and Marina Milan, both of whom play victims of the foot stomper. 
the Baltimore foot stomper. And then Susan Lowe also appears as a foot stomper victim. I think she's the one that gets stomped in the mall or maybe I think it's the mall or maybe the grocery store. She's one of those though. It was also Waters' last film to feature Edith Massey, who sadly passed away in 1984. So we're going to, we, we've been putting this off talking like a lot about Edith Massey's backstory, but I, I wanted, since this is her last film, I really wanted to kind of tell a little bit of her story uh, because kind of like what I said about um, Liz Renee when we talked about Desperate Living, her life story kind of sounds like a John Waters movie. So Edith Massey's journey to movie stardom looks a lot different than most people's. But of course, we, we've learned to love Edith Massey and we know that Edith Massey is not most people. Uh, born in 1918 to a Jewish family in New York, Massey was mostly raised in Colorado where her father had moved their family in hopes that the healthier air would, uh, would help his lungs, which had been damaged during a gas attack during World War One, Unfortunately, the fresh Colorado air didn't help, and Edie's father passed away while she was still a baby. Uh, Edie's mother, destitute and with three children, remarried a little while later and then had two more children with her new husband, but then he died a few years later, which left her alone with five children. So desperate, she took all of her children to a strict Jewish orphanage outside of Denver and then just disappeared. She, just, she left them there. Uh, so at this orphanage, the children were essentially in like like in training to become hired help uh, for girls. Their education ended after eighth grade, at which point they would be placed as housekeepers in local homes to cook, clean, and sew, which are all skills that they were taught there at the orphanage. I can't help but only picture Edith Massey as Edith Massey, even as a baby. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah, <laughs> because, and maybe it's Pink Flamingo's fault, but I'm even yeah. picturing her like being left on a stoop and like a little diaper baby, like but still Edith Massey's face and like wah wah. <laughs> I honestly, when I was writing the the outline for this episode, I tried to find pictures of her like as a younger person, and I could not. They're they they're not on the internet anywhere. There are no pictures of her before like multiple maniacs. I can't find a single one. Uh, so I, I, I'm very curious to be, and, and you'll understand why in a minute uh, as to what she looked like when she was like really young. Uh, I will say a good, th this could probably go in further viewing if you wanted to, this could, re could really go on further viewing on any of these episodes, but there's a really great little short film that Robert Mayer directed uh, right after female trouble, I think is when he made it called a love letter to Edie. And she tells her life story a little bit. It's about a 30 minute little uh, short film. That's kind of, kind of a documentary because they're interviewing Edith, but it's also very staged and it has some recreations of some of the stuff that she, that we're going to talk about here, like her going to one of these houses that where she is, has been placed as a housekeeper, but it's like her in present day, playing the child version of herself, like cleaning steps nice. with, you know, a bucket and a, and a sponge. And I think uh, it's um, Pat Moran and Mink Stoll play the like foster siblings that are like giving her a hard time. Like they're the wicked stepsisters and Cinderella kind of thing. But it's, yeah, it's definitely uh -huh. like a 60 year old Edith Massey playing, you know, the, the <laughs> six, uh, the 15 year old version of herself or whatever. Uh, it's pretty funny, yeah. but it's a great little documentary. I would, I would recommend seeking it out. If you can, you can buy it off of, Robert Mayer's website actually and get it autographed if you want to if you're a real hardcore John Waters fan uh, it's very easy to find so anyway Edith Massey uh, you know she is she was not made to be a housekeeper she's a dreamer and even as a kid she had eyes for Hollywood 
she collected movie magazines that had been donated to the orphanage, and she would cut out photos of the glamorous 1920s movie stars and arrange them in her notebooks. Uh, she wasn't ever going to be content just being a, a housekeeper, and she ran away from the families that she'd been, been assigned to several times. She kept getting brought back by the cops uh, until finally she was old enough to be considered an adult, which was at the age of 16. So after being placed into a foster home where she was treated very poorly, that's the one that's kind of dramatized in Love Letter to Edie, at the age of 16, she ran away and made her way from Colorado to Hollywood. In her own words, she says she was... Uh, movie crazy. So I went to California to try to get in the movies, but instead I became a barmaid. When she first arrived in California, she used her tap dancing skills that she had learned at the orphanage to get a job at a nightclub. Uh, and as the 50s wore on, she had several odd jobs over the years, including uh, she was what's known as a B girl. Uh, I don't, do you guys know what a B girl is? No. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a short for bar girl. Basically, it, it was illegal, but bars would hire girls to solicit drinks from bar patrons. Basically, a, a pretty girl would sit next to a guy at the bar and get him to buy her a drink, which just meant more sales for the bar, right? Uh, uh, so Edith Massey uh, was a bar girl until the bar got like in trouble from the cops, I think, and she had to find another job. So she had a bunch of odd jobs over the years. One of those was uh, she was a madam in a brothel for a little while. So nice. that's interesting. Uh, and then yeah. after a failed marriage or two, she made her way to Baltimore, where she would eventually end up working as a bartender in Pete's Hotel, which was the Fells Point Bar, of course, where John Waters first met her and asked her to be in Multiple Maniacs. Yeah, we talked about that in the Multiple Maniacs episode a little bit. There's like a wino bar. Yeah, so, so he says uh, like somebody, like a friend of his told him about her. So they went there. And so she was right. So Edie had that Riz too. Uh, just the <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but there's a little there's a little short thing about Edie on, on the Criterion version of polyester as well and, and in there john talks about like you know it's not it's not like fell's point was the place to go he said nobody was there he said most places were closed it was just neighborhood bars and the only place young people would go was pete's hotel and that was due to edith because it certainly wasn't like a lovely place to hang out but no it was a dump like, <laughs> yeah but he said drinks were like 15 cents or something, which helped. And then Edie would slip you a free one every once in a while. Yeah, um, she was the reason that people were going there. The reason that they had a crowd. And it was a lot of these like uh, beatnik kids, like like Waters and his crew, that they were going to, to hang out at this bar really because, because of Edith. Because they wanted to hang out with her as a bartender, which I would too. I would love to go to a bar where someone like Edith was the bartender. Also, <laughs> according to Big Stoll, she'd slip you a shot of her titties too, I guess. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> there's, there's that. Uh, she she's like says in that little short she's just like you know i don't i don't like going out there and showing everything and uh <laughs> they're like you can tell they're giving her a look and she's like well i do i just don't like it but <laughs> um, and uh yeah anyway also side note i'd love to see Edie tap dance i would too <laughs> it would be it would be a sight <laughs> <laughs> well, appearing in Waters films actually brought Edie the kind of fame that she had dreamt of as a kid. And she capitalized on her fame by touring as the lead singer in a punk band called Edie and the Eggs, which featured future Go-Go's member Gina Shock on drums. Uh, maybe I'll slip in a clip of them singing here. They've got a couple. She's got a couple of fun ones. She does a, a fun cover of uh, Big Girls Don't Cry. And then she does another one called Punks Get Off the Grass. It's they're I mean. She's not a great singer, as you can imagine, but uh, it, it fits. It, it's they're very fun. But she toured. She played like CBGB and stuff. Like she toured in a van, like a rock band, as the lead singer wow. of this. And she was some. And she would often wear that leather outfit that she wears in Female Trouble. 
Uh, that was nice. a lot of times that was her outfit that she wore on stage uh, when she was singing. They don't cry. Who says they don't cry? Uh, she also <laughs> posed for a series of greeting cards, uh, rather lewd greeting cards, actually. It looks like the kind of stuff you would buy at, at Spencer Gifts back in the 90s. Nice. <laughs> you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. You're old enough to know what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, oh yeah. And, uh, and she also appeared in John Mellencamp's music video for the song This Time as kind of his love interest in it, which I will I will throw that up on our Instagram or something at some point. So Because you yes, just have please. to see it. You really do. Uh, <laughs> When the Baltimore winters became too much for her to bear, she moved to Venice, California, where she opened a new version of her thrift store, Edith's, Edith's Shopping Bag, using the money that she had earned from appearing in Waters' films. And Edith Massey uh, unfortunately died of complications from lymphoma and diabetes on October 24th, 1984. And although you know she never really got the hang of reciting her lines, uh, Massey's friendly disposition endeared her to millions of people around the world. Not a single person who knew her or worked with her has anything but kind words to say about her. Everyone absolutely loved her. As John Waters told the Baltimore Sun in 1984 after she passed, he said she was the eccentric grandmother everybody wished that they had had. And I think it's fitting that her final role as Cuddles in Polyester was a character that turned out to be uh, kind of eternally happy and chipper. Uh, it was a closer approximation, I think, to the real life Edith than the the villains that she had played in the previous couple of films. I know John in like some interviews describes her as like the most unvicious person he's ever met. Uh, yeah. If anything, she was just too kind. I have a rant about this that I've really started to appreciate about John Waters, but I'll save it for the end, I guess, so it won't bog us down. But one quote I did like from him uh, that I saw in an interview is he says, uh, this movie was the first time that both Edith and Divide played the opposite of the image that they had been known as, and they got their best reviews for that. Uh, Divide played an alcoholic housewife. He didn't play a monster to scare hippies, which is what Divide was originally designed for. And Edith didn't play somebody that was haggish or an evil queen. She played a debutante, which was the exact opposite of what Edie really was. But... She should have been a debutante, if you ask me. It's quite a legacy for what is someone who is really like an outsider artist, an outsider actress. Uh, she's not exactly mainstream. If you went and asked 10 people on the street right now who Edith Massey was, most of them probably would not know who, who she was. But everyone who did know her and everyone who knew either from her work or who worked with her, people just love her. You know, even when she's playing roles like the evil queen in Desperate Living or Aunt Ida in, in Female Trouble, where she's kind of a villain, like she's still very, there's there's like a, a very specific charm about Edith Massey. And part of it is because she's not a great actress. And she, and she just seems very, I don't know, she's very unique. She's a very unique presence on film, I think. One of my favorite uh, misreadings by Edith Massey in all of these movies is... In polyester, where she's trying to say poor, poor Francine, and she says per, per Francine, and uh, John Francine. Waters says that that was because, as they always did, they tried it over and over and over to try to get her to say the line right, and because of her teeth, she couldn't say poor correctly, uh, so she just cut, it just cut, coming out per, per Francine, and now it's become like one of the most memorable lines in the movie. It's become a thing because she was saying her line wrong. But so somebody 
put that like she had lost her teeth at one point and actually just replaced them with dentures that were the normal teeth that she's been having. Yeah, there's a video actually on the Criterion. It's on one of the features on there where you can see it's like a like a news crew, like a news did one of those like local fun little local happy stories about Edith getting her new teeth because the dentist was like a local guy who offered to make her some dentures for free, I think. And you can see her in in the in the video. And like she's at the dentist's office and she, you see her with a full set of dentures in her mouth. Uh, she apparently lost those. She like left, she like left them in her purse at a bar or something. And then somebody stole her purse and she never replaced them again. <laughs> nice. Most of the other major roles in the film were filled with local Baltimore actors that Pat Moran found by putting casting call ads out in the local papers. Uh, David Sampson, Mountain, and Ken King, who play Elmer, Lulu, and Dexter Fishpaw, were all found this way, just through auditions, basically. Steve Bader, who plays Bobo, was the lead singer of the punk band Dead Boys. Uh, Waters had found him uh, at a... They, they met each other on a local Baltimore talk show, and he just asked him to be in the movie. It was in Whores of Babylon with D.D. Ramold, too. They were regulars at the CBGB. Oh, yeah? I, what was wild about him, I mean, you know, unfortunate, I guess, is like in 90, he died. He was like in Paris, he got hit by a car. While on a oh, motorcycle, I think. Yeah. Fell apparently he like fell off the bike when he got hit. He like hit his head, but he thought he was fine and he just went home and he died from brain injury, basically. Oh wow. Jeez. That's sad. Yeah. yeah, I mean he uh John Waters said that he what he liked about him was that he uh he looked like he was a maniac, but really wasn't in real life yeah and in the, in the commentary on polyester it's funny too like he says you know i don't want to judge people but he says that his girlfriend confessed to waters that she had snorted his ashes like they, they wanted <laughs> to spread them over jim morrison's grave because he was a huge jim morrison fan but uh -huh. she had kept some of his snorted them so she could be closer to him which it sounds like a pew pair away from some jeffrey dauber shit so, right yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thing they do by the way where they you know she she gets the date with the other guy and then go, drives off and then gets out of the car to get with him john water said that's exactly you know we talked about in the past him and mary vivian pierce uh, when they would be best friends they would get in so much trouble their parents separated them for a long yeah, time that's how they did it <laughs> yeah that's what they would do is she would get a date with somebody or like fake a date for a while he said and then drive to the top of the hill to get out and get in the car with john or get or hang out with john or whatever and said later that her parents caught on to that. So then she would get actual dates. And then just randomly when they got to a certain point on the road, like she would jump out of the car real quick and go hang out with John instead. That's so funny. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it, I didn't know his name, uh, Steve Vader, but I mean, in the movie, it, it makes it a point to like have his name as, as, as Bobo uh, at the end of the, the opening cast credits. So I was like, oh, who is that guy? Then I looked him up. I was like, oh, he's the lead singer of the Dead Boys. He was in a, another band after the Dead Boys too. Not the one you mentioned, but a different one. Anyway, Dead Boys, if you don't know them, go Google the song Sonic Reducer. It's a great punk, kind of almost like a punk anthem. It's really good. Uh, that's by far and away their most popular song, I think. But it's a really great, great punk song. So the role of uh, doc Dr. Arnold Quackenshaw, that's the guy at the very beginning who explains the odorama process. Uh, he was played by Rick Breitenfeld, who was the director of Maryland Public Broadcasting. Uh, and he was actually cast in the role on the morning that the scene was shot because the original actor who signed on for the role bailed on them at the very last minute. So they just had to like call friends and somebody recommended this guy and he was fine doing it. He said, as long as I won't be mortified was, was his, his uh, <laughs> only, only thing. But uh, yeah, so he came on and John's like, well, he did better than the guy who we got from a casting call in New York, you know? 
Uh, we I don't, you don't really know what happened to the other guy. He just kind of disappeared on him. But this guy did pretty well in the in that opening role. And, and then that, finally, there's a lot, and there's you know to you know puff him up a little bit. Those aren't short short shots. Like there's no. a lot of there's a lot of well, stuff going on in and a lot of shot. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot so of dialogue to him. Yeah. And then finally, Francine's mother was played by an actress named Joni Ruth White, who had appeared in a uh, in a few small non-sexual roles in a couple of pornos in the early 80s uh, and would later appear in the cult film Smithereens and Street Trash. Uh, so, Todd, we're getting a little bit closer to the mainstream here with John yeah. Waters movies. Any chance mm-hmm. that Joni Ruth White or or Stiv Baders or anyone appeared in uh, in the Star Trek? universe there's nobody in star trek Good, excellent <laughs> moving on <laughs> all right so with polyester john waters was about to get a crash course in professional filmmaking so while he'd always made his films in baltimore this time around he was essentially working for a studio new line and an executive producer robert shea who were all based in new york and because they were shooting on 35 millimeter, all of the camera equipment had to be rented from New York-based companies. And most of the pre-production and post-production work would take place in New York. So what that really means is that, is that Polyester was going to be a New York movie that just so happened to be shooting on location in Baltimore. And even though the film was budgeted much, much higher than any of Waters' other films, the production still had to keep things very tight. $300,000 for a feature-length movie is still... A very small amount of money, even in 1980. So the way that production manager Robert Mayer breaks it down in his book, uh, of the $300,000 budget, he had to deduct about thirty-five grand for Odorama, uh, $10,000 for New Line's uh, overhead, whatever that means, $10,000 for John's salary, $10,000 for Tab Hunter's salary, and $15,000 for Divine's salary. So after all these expenses and a few other little uh, expenses, the below-the-line budget for the film was really closer to about 175 k So the majority of the film was shot in the suburban Baltimore neighborhood of Chartwell, where a house was rented for two months and completely refurbished with a bunch of kitschy furniture that Vince Perano uh, found in local thrift stores. A funny story he tells in the uh, commentary, I think it was, he says, uh, right in the middle of all this, too, multiple maniacs was uh, having to be reviewed by the censor board because uh, they were going to play it at this theater called the Charles. He said, uh, Mary Avara uh, went crazy and uh, they took it uh, before a court and the judge came out, and said his eyes had been insulted for 90 minutes. And there was like a huge article in the paper that it was the most blasphemous movie ever made. And he's like, all this was happening is we're getting ready to tell these neighbors that we're, we're making a movie. And it's, it, I swear to God, it's a real Hollywood movie. We're really doing one. And they said that they didn't even believe that that was really Tab Hunter that was there. (laughs) But some of them later, by the way, uh, the neighbors would end up joining as extras and stuff. He said, you you could do one of two things if you lived in that neighborhood. You could either just sit around and hate us or you could join us. We mentioned in our Desperate Living episode that the mayor or the the governor of uh, Baltimore had disbanded the censor board. Uh, but what 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 that's that's the way I phrased it. But what really happened, I guess, was that he put into motion the disbanding of the censor board, but it still had to go through, you know, the whole rigmarole, the political process and go, you know, where it had to be approved. by. All. This is three years later and it's still that still has it still has not fully been disbanded, although this was one of the last movies. I think this is definitely the last John Waters movie that 
uh, where that was an issue. Of course, th it wasn't an issue at all with this movie because this movie would not have any issues with the censor board at all. Uh, but I just wanted to clear that up because I think the way that I phrased it in Desperate Living made it seem like it was just kaput. And doing some further research while doing this episode, it seems like it was on its way out but had not completely been disbanded yet obviously because mm -hmm. as we know multiple maniacs was screened around the time that they were starting to film this so when so they're filming in this little neighborhood in baltimore and you can see like if you watch the movie i mean the neighbors houses are right next door like they, they didn't they didn't rent the neighbors houses so people are still living in those houses it it was probably pretty annoying honestly i i would think it was probably pretty annoying it might have been it would have been fun for like a day or two oh, they're filming a movie and then like after a week seven it's like what oh, really <laughs> you know this, it would be pretty old uh and the, and the first thing that they filmed was the aerial shot of the fishball house that appears it's the very first shot we see in the movie the like helicopter shot over the trees of the neighborhood you know and this shot was done with a helicopter uh, an actual helicopter which made one pass successfully and then had to make an emergency landing on a nearby golf course after it started having engine trouble uh and the guy who flew it was like a vietnam vet uh, he had done all these missions in Vietnam, and he said that like the way that they needed to hover and move the helicopter was one of the most difficult things that you could ask a helicopter to do because they're hovering sideways so that they could shoot the camera out of the side with Dave Inslee yeah. holding the camera. They didn't have like a mounted camera on the helicopter, which is how a bigger production movie would do it now. They had, you know, so they had to go basically hover sideways, which was very difficult, which is actually what ended up causing the engine trouble on it because it just put too much strain on it but he he had to yeah do an emergency landing on a nearby golf course and the guy later said that the that was the closest even including all the missions he flew in vietnam that was the closest call he ever had as a helicopter pilot to wow. crashing <laughs> yeah so this is not the best way to start this production right no, uh, and it certainly no. is not a great way to endear yourselves to the neighbors who probably didn't appreciate having a noisy helicopter nearly crash next to their house yeah. i think he says in the commentary that that's like you know they didn't even know yet that they were going to be filming there like when that was happening <laughs> they probably so thought, it was just... what would they what do you think of a helicopter just starts hovering over your neighborhood like that right. <laughs> <laughs> uh well despite that most of the neighbors didn't have uh didn't have many issues with the movie being filmed there especially since most of the scenes would be shot indoors so like all the indoor scenes and outdoor scenes are in this house this is not like a oh. set uh, they're wow. they're shooting and setting up lights inside of the inside of the house, right? Um, although there was one neighbor who did threaten to sue because the filming was becoming an irritant, but Bob Mayer and John Waters were able to kind of smooth things over with them. So how <laughs> how did they how did like, they smooth it over? I mean, I know, so, yeah, so, I know John Waters is a hell of a salesman, but like. I, you know, the, well, like they buy so him a he, case he, of beer, or is it like no, no? Well, they give him here's the story uh okay the way that the way that bob mayer tells it is that they they got they contacted the lawyer who had sent them the the lawsuit you know whatever paperwork which was mm -hmm. the brother of the guy who lived in the neighborhood it was he and he, he kind of they talked to this guy they said you know it's my brother he's he's an elderly guy him and his wife they're old and they're lonely and they just want something to do and they just want someone to talk to basically this gives them something to do so Bob Mayer and John, I, actually, I don't even know that John Waters was there for the meeting. He may have been, I can't remember, but they basically just eventually just went over to these people's houses and introduced themselves and sat down with them and talked to them about it and smoothed it all over just by being their like friendly to them. It seemed like they were just, a, a, it seems like they were just a lonely older couple 
who didn't have yeah. a lot of friends. And just the simple idea, this is simple uh, act of going and talking to them and befriending them and saying, hey, if you have any issues, here's my number, call us. That's all it really took. They just, they were just lonely and bored and didn't, you know, and that's how they reacted. That that's that's really wow. all it is. So all all it took was being being friendly to them. They just needed a friendly face that was a part of the production. Oh. So nice, <laughs> yeah. So just you know, that's how you get out of difficult situations. Yeah, it just goes, be nice to people. It goes a long way, kids. <laughs> be ni- be nice to everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So and, and they had, by the way, before they started filming, they had put like flyers in everyone's mailbox to say, "Hey, we're about to shoot a movie." So the people were aware. It wasn't like it was a a complete surprise. Now the helicopter might've been a surprise, but they knew that they were going to be shooting a movie in the house. And I think, I think they told them that it was like a teen comedy or something, which is not completely wrong. (laughs) There are, there are several teenagers in the movie, you know, but of course the main character is a, is a, is a housewife. But anyway, so uh, for another scene where Francine first meets Todd tomorrow, which is the character played by tab Hunter. Uh, By the way, I've noticed this. Just as a aside, I've noticed as watching these John Waters movies how much uh, John Waters likes character names that are uh, alliterations, like Francine mm-hmm. Fishpaw, Todd Tomorrow. Uh, what is uh, Mink Stoll's character's name? Is uh, uh, Sandra Sullivan? You've got yeah. Cuddles Kavinsky, uh, Bobo. I don't even think they they do say his last name because she when she's talking to the kid who picks Lulu up for a fake date, Bobo Belsinger. But he does this on a a lot of his movies. Don Davenport from Female Trouble. You know, this is something he does a lot. He likes names that have like the, that are alliterations. I don't, it's just a thing that he does. Gene Hill is gospel bus hijacker. (laughs) Gospel bus hijacker. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, back in the day, uh, Stan Lee said something about the character's it made the characters more memorable. So you had yeah. like Reed Richards, Peter Parker, Peter Parker Susan yeah. Storm, and you know, stuff like that. It helped, it helped sort of, you know, stick in the, you know, wrinkles of your brain a little bit. More. Yeah. That makes sense. That's, that does make a lot of sense. So anyway, they're filming this scene where Francine first meets Todd tomorrow, right? Uh, where they, it, where they, she first meets him face to face, I guess, because she does see him from the car uh, earlier. But when they first meet face to face, they had to stage this grisly car wreck on the side of the road, uh, and they did it <laughs> right across the street from a church on a Sunday morning. So, yeah, of course. So, uh, needless to say, they had a lot of gawkers. Um, most of the passersby did not realize that a movie was being shot. Uh, some of them saw the camera crew, but assumed it was like a news crew covering this accident. Uh, they had a lot of people offering to uh, pray for them during their church service that day, including the <laughs> pastor of the church. You know, so uh, they, in fact, at least one person went into hysterics when they saw the severed head lying in the road that the guy picks up and tosses. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they, so they freaked him out a little bit. Uh, another one of my favorite little anecdotes from the filming of Polyester uh, involves Gene Hill, uh, who appears here in a cameo as the gospel bus hijacker. Uh, so she apparently got so into her role that she bit into the car's tire. You know, when she bites in um, Bobo's tire uh, and it oh, deflates. Yeah. But she really did it. She really bit the tire for real. And she lost her two front teeth as a result. Oh, no. <laughs> Which kind of made me uh, think of that story in Desperate Living where she threw the guy into the wall and knocked him out, remember? Because she just got too into yeah. the scene. I think that maybe oh. Gene Hill's just a method actor. 
who just like gets super yeah. into her roles, you know? So <laughs> maybe that's what was yeah. going on here. But yeah, she got so into this she scene could, that she actually she, lost two, two front teeth. She could teach Jared Leto a thing or two. <laughs> well, once filming was complete, Waters and Charles Ruggiero once again edited the film with Waters adamant that it not exceed 90 minutes, which is a rule that he applies to all of his movies. Uh, and at least two scenes were totally cut from the film to get it down to this runtime. In one of them, Francine tries to sneak past the press uh, that they're, you know, at her door uh, by going out the back door. But she runs into an angry mob of reporters there, including Dreamland regulars, George Stover and Steve Yeager, who pin her arms back so they can get photos of her. And then in the other scene, Dexter is shown having a relapse after he returns home and he shaves off one of his eyebrows, which does explain why he only has one eyebrow in the final scenes of the movie. Like the scene at the very end when, when Francine's having her breakdown and stuff and you see him come out and he, she, you know, stomps on uh, Mink's foot, makes her, makes Mink shoot Elmer. Uh, he only has one eyebrow there. You, it's hard to see it in that scene, but in the very final shot of the movie where uh, Francine, you know, sprays the air freshener, uh, it's mm -hmm. very clear that he's missing his, uh, his right eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> When it was time to strike prints for the film, New Line wanted both, uh, you know, an odorama and a non-odorama version of the movie, just in case that gimmick flopped. So for the odorama version, they had they had come up with the idea to flash a number on the screen that would coincide with the smell on the scratch and sniff card. So basically, like a number one pops up, you scratch number one, and, and that smell coincides with what's going on in the movie. Uh, then for the non-Odorama version, they just made a second print without the numbers on the screen, so it was a pretty small expense. They just had to strike a second print without those numbers. What wasn't a small expense was the printing and shipping logistics of the scratch-and-sniff cards themselves. So what New Line had seen as a kind of a, a low-cost promotional gimmick soon turned into a pricey logistical nightmare. Ugh. For starters... The cards were, you know, they were only somewhat affordable if ordered in enormous, huge quantities. 3M required prepayment on the hundreds of thousands of Odorama cards that they were ordering, which was a massive expense on a film that hadn't even been released yet. So then New Line ends up with a warehouse filled with pallets of these cards that they would then have to count, pack, and ship to each theater showing the film. And nobody could really guess how many cards to send to a, a particular theater. Uh, you know, if they didn't send enough, then moviegoers would be angry because they couldn't get the, they'd see the numbers pop up on the screen with nothing to scratch. Uh, but if they sent too many, then the movie theater owners were supposed to send back the leftovers, but most of them didn't want to pay the posters to send them back. So they would claim that they, you know, accidentally lost them or they threw them away by accident. Sometimes they would send them back and they would just get lost in the mail. So they were losing these cards. And then theater owners also balked at the idea of paying extra for the cards, which is what New Line initially asked them to do. You see, New Line was advertising the film as being shot in Odorama. That was on all of the advertising for this. It's on the poster. It's everywhere. Uh, so if the theater didn't get the cards, it was actually, it was New Line who was going to look bad, not the theater, because the theater could just mm -hmm. be like, well, they didn't send it to us. They were supposed to, and we didn't get them. So it makes New Line look bad. Of course, most of these problems didn't manifest themselves until the film was already shot and well into post-production and new line was, they were not happy being stuck with an expensive gimmick, which would eventually cause their relationship with waters to sour for years to come. Although I don't think that's really fair because they signed off on it and it's on them for not doing the research that would be. I was be, about to say you know. that's, yeah, that's poor planning. That's not exactly yeah. waters. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all should have thought this through, honestly. But they wanted somebody to blame, I guess. So they blamed John Waters. So 
Uh, Gary, did you you had the Criterion release of this? Did you watch this with the Odorama card? I did, Justin. And this brings forth my Gary's dub story for today. Okay, good. I'm excited. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a confession to make. I have no sense of smell. You, I have no sense of smell. <laughs> I wish that was the problem. No, I uh, I I have never done scratch and sniff before. Okay, I've never, that's not unusual. Yeah, I just was not I mean, familiar with it. So, but you understand the concept. I mean, it's right there in the name. Yeah, I know you scratch okay. it, but I had the thing, and I was like scratching it, and then like the stuff wasn't coming off, and so then I was like trying to grab stuff to like scrape it off, and then I finally got oh, you thought it was out, like a lot, and then I, yeah, and then finally like Jennifer a lottery. came in, and she's like, "It's not a fucking lottery ticket. You just scratch it with your fingernail, and you smell it." And so number one <laughs> is uh, demolished. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so then uh so finally she's like i'll show you so she was around for number two lucky me uh, lucky (laughs) lucky for both of you i guess (laughs) so she got the uh rotten egg fart yeah in her nose fart smell it was also stuck under her fingernail apparently because then she would just randomly like shove it in my nose (laughs) i would (laughs) would definitely recommend if you are doing the scratch and stuff i i started using my fingernail you get a better scratch using like a penny or a key i ended up using my car key because otherwise you will have all of these smells on your fingertips (laughs) like mixed together that is not pleasant so after like number four I started using a, a key. This is to me like none of them, and I don't think I'm alone here because there's a there's a extra feature on the Criterion as well with John Waters trying to do the scratch and sniff thing, and he's not very good at it either. But yeah. after a little while, I was just like, I feel like I'm sniffing weird postcard. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, it's I was kind of out of it. Like I was like, all right, I'm done here with this thing. So I like tossed it, not tossed it, but I just put it back in the case after like four or five. Well, I did all of them, uh, and they do. They can kind of run together. I mean, the um, some of the smells, like the first one, the rose, is really strong, uh, so they mm. can overpower some of the other ones. So they do kind of mix together, but it still makes for a fun experience watching the movie. I think. I think it's really fun. I think it'd be really fun to go to do like a live screening, like in a movie theater where everyone has a scratch and sniff card. You know, I don't know. Um, I say you just you still bring drag queens in to fart your face. Well, that only works for number two, <laughs> you know? Uh, plus, that's how you get pink eye. Yeah. yeah good point. That's a good point. So here, here are the smells for, for anyone who... Because, Todd, you, you don't have the criterion, so you didn't have the scratch and sniff experience, right? That is correct. The okay. I I bought I uh, I rented it on Amazon, and they Did go through the, the whole... Rigor- it didn't even have the numbers. No. It didn't have the numbers. It still had the guy at the beginning explaining the process, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that on Amazon, uh, like when I was going for uh, nap reviews that uh, that people were bitching about that it didn't have even have the the numbers to prompt you for the smells yeah. or something. They were just well, I mean, there have been multiple like home video releases over the year, and some have them and some don't. Uh, depending on, I guess, if it came with an Odorama card, like the Criterion one does. I, I honestly kind of think. I kind of wish that the Criterion had both versions on it, like you could choose. Because once you mm. use the Odorama or card, you it's done. You can't reuse it, and there's no way to get an extra one. So it's kind of a one and done thing. And now every time I like I, I rewatched the movie this morning, and the numbers were popping up, but I didn't have the experience. Granted, I knew what the smells were because I have had the experience. But um, of, of a Dutch oven from Divide, you've had yeah, that experience. Yeah. Well, it wasn't Divine. <laughs> it was uh, Elmer who farts in the bed. 
Oh, I guess it was Elmer, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's Elmer who farts. Yeah. So here, here are the, mm-hmm. the smells, if you're wondering. So number one is a rose. That's when Dr. Quackenshaw is demonstrating the card. He sniffs the rose. It's very nice and pleasant, right? Number two, fittingly, is a fart. Uh, when Elmer farts in bed. And this is all, by the way, we haven't mentioned it, but the reason that they they worked all this in is because Divine's character has this like heightened sense of smell. You see her smelling, sniffing things throughout the whole movie. Mm. Uh, number three is the smell of airplane glue. That's when Lulu and Bobo are huffing glue in his car. And then you've got uh, number four is pizza for when Elmer pranks Francine where she sent, he sends a bunch of pizza delivery guys. Uh, number five is gasoline. That's when Francine's mom gives her the booze and then it turns out to actually be gasoline that she's drinking. Uh, there's a number six is a skunk when Francine and Cuddles are on their picnic and the skunk shows up, obviously. Uh, number seven is natural gas. That's when Francine finds Lulu passed out with her head in the oven. That one was pretty strong and it, it smelled like kerosene. Uh, there's uh, number eight's leather. That's when she first meets Todd and she sniffs the upholstery on his Corvette, you know, so you get the smell mm. of, of leather. Uh, number nine is dirty shoes. That's when uh, Todd and the grandmother, you know, they hold the flowers in her face and then switch it out with some dirty, nasty shoes. So uh, that one was pretty gross. <laughs> and then number 10 is air freshener. That's at the very end when Francine says that it's time, you know, she's clearing the air and she sprays air freshener. So those are the 10 smells. If you, if you did not watch the odorama version, but I would recommend if you have a chance, it's a fun experience at least once, you know? <laughs> so, all right. So remember new light had all these requirements for the film. It had to have a name star, had to have divine, had to be shot in 35 millimeter, had to have a professional music score. Uh, we've gotten all of these except for that last one. And that last one would be supplied by a composer named Michael Kamen. Uh, we've actually talked about Kamen here on the past. I don't know if you guys remember, but he, he did the score for David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. Uh, he also scored Lethal Weapon and The Last Boy Scout, which we talked about back in our uh, early on, back in our Shane Black series. Uh, he would go on to score several Terry Gilliam movies, several Die Hard movies. He did Highlander. He did the, uh, the, the greatest movie of all time. Roadhouse. Roadhouse. He did License to Kill. He did uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You know, this guy's, these are big movies. You know, this guy's going to be going to become a pretty big deal in the world of movie music. But at the time of our story, he was still very early in his career and he had only scored a couple of films, one of which was Mark Lester's Stunts, which, as we mentioned before, that was the first film that New Line produced themselves. So that's how he kind of got involved here. So he had a connection with New Line. Uh, Kamen, however, was not the only musician to work on the film. You probably know, probably recognized a couple of other names in the opening credits. Um, so through one of his other projects that he had worked on in New York, Robert Mayer met Chris Stein, the guitarist and founding member of Blondie. Now, this wasn't like Blondie was an up-and-coming band at the time, right? He, he didn't meet some random musician playing in a bar. Uh, this was... Around the time, like hanging on, hanging on the telephone, Heart of Glass, and One Way or Another had all just been released, so they were huge. Like they were, like uh, I think One Way or Another goes on, like during the the creation of the music for this film, goes on to become like number one on the Billboard charts. So Blondie is a a big deal at this time. Yeah. So Mayer tells Stein about Polyester film that he's working on, you know, and he asked if he and Debbie Harry would be interested in writing some material for the film. Well, Stein was immediately interested because he was looking to get into scoring films because, you know, he kind of saw that like being a rock star can't be something that I do forever. So he wanted to get into scoring movies and he saw this as a great way to get his foot in the door. 
So Meyer took this suggestion to New Line before he asked Waters. He took it directly to, to Bob Shea at New Line. Uh, New Line, of course, was fully on board because they saw the involvement of one of the biggest bands in America as a pretty great selling point for the film. Waters, mm. however, was a little bit annoyed, uh, partially because Robert Mayer went over his head. Uh, it wasn't because he didn't like Blondie or anything, but he felt that this was just another element of the film that he had no control over. It was He felt like the movie was partially being taken out of his hands with this decision. But after he met with Stein and Harry, he okayed the decision. He was down for it. This has to be, I mean, just to connect it even more since we're doing this with Cayman, don't forget Debbie Harry was uh, in Videodrome. So yeah, yeah, uh, he didn't do the score for Videodrome though. He because that was Howard Shore, but so I don't know if that's just well. Well, I was just or, connecting yeah. it. I was just connecting, connecting it with Debbie Harry. Yeah. Oh yeah, well Debbie yeah. Harry, Debbie Harry in well, Videodrome. She's going to show up in. She's also going to show up in Hairspray. So her and Waters continue yeah. to have uh, a relationship. This would have been before uh, Videodrome, I guess. Though, so anyway, mm, I just yeah. thought I was just trying to make a connection. Yeah, this is um, Videodrome well, right like around 80... the same time. 82, 83, 80. yeah. Yeah, so it might have been yeah, around so the was, same time. This was probably right before Videodrome. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, Debbie Harry's record contract wouldn't allow her to sing on any non-Blondie project. Like it was, uh, she had a very strict contract she was kind of taken advantage of as a young artist. And she had this really strict contract that wouldn't allow her to sing on anyone else's project. So she wasn't able to sing uh, lead vocals on any of the songs, which is what they had originally wanted. Although she does sing some uncredited backing vocals on one song. Uh, and she and Stein contributed writing on three different songs in the film. I don't think she's credited on all three, but uh, according to Robert Mayer, at least, she co-wrote three of the songs in the film. And those songs are uh, the title track, which is just called Polyester, which is sung by Tab Hunter during the opening credits. Uh, there's one called Be My Daddy Baby, which is Lulu's theme. That's sung by uh, Michael Kamen, actually. That's the one that Harry sings backing vocals. And then the, there's one called The Best Thing Love Song, which plays during that cheesy sequence where Divine and Tab Hunter are you know, frolicking through the fields and stuff. It's a great <laughs> sequence. Uh, and that one features lead vocals by Bill Murray, of all people. <laughs> uh, so uh, how did Bill Murray get involved? It's a good question. Good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, in, uh, in 1980, 1981, Murray was a huge star, right? He had recently left SNL, and he had scored big hits with Meatballs and Stripes. So why why would he sing a song on a low-budget John Waters movie? Uh, well, Bill a, freaking Murray. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, he, yeah, he was a friend with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein. Uh, I don't know how they became friends. Maybe... Blondie appeared on SNL. I'm not really sure. Uh, but he offered to sing the vocals for free, which New Line loved. And they they saw as another great boon for the film because, again, Bill Murray's a big star. Uh, Waters wasn't happy with Murray being involved uh, because if you read a lot of interviews with Waters at this time, he is like famously anti-TV. Like he loved telling people that he didn't own a TV. Uh, he didn't watch TV. He he saw it as like the lowest form of entertainment. Uh, so he was definitely not a fan of SNL. He didn't like Bill Murray's type of humor, which was kind of this more buffoonish type of humor, whereas John saw his humor as like more like smarter, more satirical and things like that. Uh, but he couldn't really argue with New Line about a big movie star contributing to their little movie for <laughs> without asking for pay. I, I wonder if that's where all the hate for John Belushi comes from. Uh, just that, for his, that, just not liking like uh, yeah, TV actors. Yeah, that, I don't. Yeah, that I mean, SNL connection, that sort of thing. Maybe. You know, yeah, it's possible. I mean, and John Waters, obviously, he 
it's it doesn't he's not anti TV forever because he ends up like hosting a couple TV shows. He, he appears on mm-hmm. The Simpsons, you know, but he he hosts a couple TV shows later on uh, where he like on I don't I remember what was it on like Bravo or History Channel or something where it's a show about people getting murdered like like uh like husband and wife's killing each other it's like these different stories where he he plays the host uh where he's like uh, i think he's called the groom the groom reaper is what he calls his character in the (laughs) in that show i'll have to look it up i think it's the groomer i think he's called the groomer (laughs) that's not the groomer that's that's not that's not sully the name of john waters I'm just kidding. Polyester premiered in Baltimore on May 15th, 1981, before expanding its release to New York uh, on May 29th of that year. Uh, By the early 80s, that short-lived midnight movie movement was kind of coming to an end in its current form. So for the first time in his career, a John Waters movie was set to show in most parts of the country as a normal feature. So instead of just showing on Friday and Saturday nights at midnight, it's going to play multiple times throughout the day, just like a regular old movie. And the film continued to roll out in cities across the country over the next several weeks, premiering in some locations as late as November of 1981. Critical response to the film was mostly positive. Even Lou Cedrone, remember John's old nemesis from the Baltimore Sun who like hated all of his movies? He even gave Polyester a good review. Uh, Variety called it a a fitfully amusing comedy of not-so-ordinary people. While the Hollywood Reporter said it was a funny film, which still may be found totally tasteless by many. That's kind of a backhanded compliment there. Uh, Time Magazine, however, Time gave it a rave review saying that it had, uh, quote, more honest laughs than Airplane. Wow. Yeah, that's that's big. Uh, Even the New York Times loved it with Janet Maslin. Right. And remember, New York Times, they haven't liked like any of his movies, at least not the regular film critics, I should say. There are writers for the New York times, but like the the Janet Maslin and and the like that were like the main critics for the New York times. They were never big fans of John Waters film, but for polyester Maslin wrote this ordinarily, Mr. Waters is not everyone's cup of tea, but polyester is not Mr. Waters ordinary movie. It's a very funny one with a hip stylized humor that extends beyond the usual limitations of his outlook. This time, the comic vision is so controlled and steady that Mr. Waters need not rely so heavily on the grotesque touches that made his other films such perennial favorites on the weekend midnight movie circuit. Here's one that can just as well be shown in the daytime. Another kind of backhanded compliment, I guess. Uh, that, but yeah. <laughs> a very, very good review from the New York Times. Uh, but of course, you can't please everyone. Uh, Mainstream critics may have been giving polyester positive reviews, but some of Waters' longtime fans accused Waters of selling out. Uh, That didn't really phase Waters, though. He didn't really care because he had been hearing similar criticisms his whole career, really all the way back to like female trouble because he didn't try to top the dog shit eating scene that he had done in in Pink Flamingos. Uh, He he actually said in in, uh, one interview, he said, what's the next thing you could have done? A snuff movie? I guess they were mad it wasn't a snuff movie. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like if you're mad that John Waters didn't follow up Pink Flamingos with a snuff movie, maybe you need a nap. Well, I checked uh, I checked Amazon and IMDb and Letterboxd, and there's definitely some people that need a nap. <laughs> this first review is for Justin. Half Star from Zora, who says, 
Poster made me throw up. I hated it. Wasn't worth watching, so I didn't watch it. <laughs> the poster looks like a Mad Magazine uh, ad. What what's what made you throw yeah. up about that poster? It's it's uh, <laughs> oh, that's very weird. I don't know. I didn't watch it. If you if Letterbox reviewers, you're the only people that have a chance of hearing this. If you didn't watch <laughs> the movie, or you only put it on in the background, stop fucking reviewing it. Yeah, that's I don't yeah. I don't do that. Like if I if you I shouldn't sub if if movies don't have a star rating for me, it's usually because like I just maybe had it on in the background and I didn't feel like I gave it like full yeah. attention. I usually don't even log a movie if I'm not like fully engaged with it. Like if I'm doing chores around the house and just have something playing in the background or something, you know, I, I won't I'll log them it, just so. because I feel like I watched a movie and I and like a day later, I'll be like, I, I swear to God, I watched a movie yesterday and I don't remember what it was. And so I also t- I have them a tendency for that reason. to, I'll like put on movies, uh, like when I go to bed and I'll, I usually fall asleep within the first 10 minutes. So I don't log those, you know, because I didn't finish the movie. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but I, I have a sneaking suspicion there are a lot of people too that put on movies that I think they're not actually watching. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, <laughs> and even if they don't say it as flat out as this person, uh, why would you do that? Why would you give it a half star so, if you so didn't dumb. even watch the fucking movie? I hate <laughs> what, that. I hate that what so is the star rating for? Like what are you basing yeah. the, what 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 quality are you rating? <laughs> It's it doesn't deserve Jeez. your love or your hate if no. you didn't pay attention to it. Just if you don't have something nice to say or wait, no, that doesn't make sense here either. Uh, <laughs> Anne Marie gave it a one and a half stars. Said I can't remember the last time a comedy didn't make me laugh at least once. Not saying this is a bad film, but I did not like it at all. They were just terrible to that woman from start to finish, and I'm not sure why this is supposed to be funny. Uh, it is funny, though. But, uh, I mean, that person, that's not a bad review. It's just not for them. They're just admitting it's I, not I for know. them. I was, know. I was reading. I got to tell you something. Uh, this probably gives my hand away, like, a little bit, but it shows my hand. That's the phrasing I was Yeah, that's the phrase. Yeah, that's the... Uh, <laughs> gives my hand gives away. My hand away. And, like, in marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I think I related to this person because, uh, well, we'll talk about it, but I, I yeah, I was kind of like ambivalent. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go on. Uh, one star from Algin who says typical American trash. What the fuck? I've seen so many effed up movies from all around the world. Japanese are the weirdest. French are the most artistic. American movies are just the most tasteless garbage. I wonder where he's from. <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't know. France. Sounds like. Yeah, uh, Wanda. Wanda here gave it one star. Uh, title of her review on IMDb is, John Waters fans, get over yourselves. Uh, the review says, <laughs> I get it that this is a cult movie for aficionados of John Waters. None of that changes the fact that it does not age well, despite the fact that Tab Hunter is kind of cute. Okay, I do kind of like the Odorama gimmick, but that's not enough to redeem the seedy, pseudo-subversive film. I do understand that the obvious charges against it, sad, sorry, sexist, stupid, stereotype, shoddy, etc., are beside the point. The response from defenders can only be, duh, of course that's the point. Outrage with a capital O. But really, is that enough of a point? No, I don't think so. 
This bizarre and tired film will deservedly sink to oblivion with not very much more time. And good luck to it. I wouldn't wish watching it on my worst enemy. Life is too short to spend any of it on this low-budget dreck. I definitely recommend against wasting your money. They said it's going to sink to oblivion, like people are going to forget about it soon. Is that what she? Is that what that means? Because 30, 40 years ago, whatever. 40 years ago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. How about uh, Leaf? Give it at one star. There's a couple of shiny moments of trash, but Divide is just so much better when she's terrorizing humanity instead of being victimized by it. Uh, that's that's one of those. Fo- that's, yeah. Know, yeah, that's just one of those people who wants Divine to eat more dog shit. Yeah, they just want the. It's at least a. I guess I'm thinking, like a person who's not just being shitty for the sake of being shitty. They just prefer the older stuff. They just have yeah. that. Right. This person gave it a half star, <laughs> and their name was Foo for Thought, like F U Foo for Thought, which I thought was yeah. one clever. Also, two, uh, Todd's burner account. I'm pretty sure. This is- <laughs> 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 I have only actually watched two John Waters films. Still think it's Todd. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I get what he's going for. Tacky camp trash. But while I understand his work, I utterly despise it. I don't understand how anyone is entertained by polyester. I'm not laughing with it. I'm not laughing at it. I'm simply not laughing or even slightly enjoying it. I like plenty of bad films. But water films etch out this place in cinema I simply have no interest in. And before anybody complains, it's not the LGBTQ themes and the characters. That's all gravy. It's the style of film that I dislike. This aesthetic. So far, Waters is my most disliked filmmaker of all time. His films are just not made for me. Way to go, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's uh, that's all i've got for for this week I'll see you guys later todd in, his, todd in his head is like well that covers it yeah. <laughs> half star from ag agostina i have no idea what i just saw i'm gonna keep it real here and admit that i hated every second of this wow <laughs> several people are using very strong words for their dislike of this yeah, hate, hate is a very uh, and strong I'm like, word. this is not my most like hated John Waters film or my most liked. This is weird. It's weird that it's uh, garnering these strong responses. Yeah, uh, Des gave it one star. Says, I appreciate and get the art behind it, but in terms of my personal enjoyment, I'd rather just bash my head into a brick wall over and over and over again. <laughs> Scratch and sniff pizza smelt like ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh ridge 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 i don't know one star okay i get john water's intention to put visually unappealing people in his films but for crying out loud couldn't he find any that could act the painfully inept dialogue and performances almost make this movie unwatchable it's akin to a freshman high school play aside from that the film is simply generally unpleasant If you were going to a theater and could choose to watch a movie that would emotionally suck you in or a movie that would insincerely force itself upon you, the former would be my choice. It doesn't help at all that the actor playing the husband is the spitting image of John Ashcroft. My 
gorge rose. What? My gorge rose when he took his clothes off. The only redeeming value of this film is the silly opening, silly opening sequence instructing the audience on the film's odorama technique. Who's John Ashcroft? John Ashcroft. I know that name. Uh, the name is he, former U.S. Oh, attorney yeah. General. <laughs> the U.S. Attorney General. He does kind of look like him. <laughs> That's the guy. He, he's the one who worked under George Bush, right? That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is. I just I just pulled him up on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> he does kind of look like him, but with more hair. One star from Robin Moon. Uh, this is Todd's other burner account. Life goal. Never, ever put myself in the position of having to watch two John Waters films in one calendar year ever again. Also, maybe just never watch another John Waters film again. Listen, all I, I, felt, I felt like I didn't I didn't get all my thoughts out on the first <laughs> on the first review. So I had to go in and clarify it a little bit more. Wow. Todd, I appreciate uh, you sticking with this series. You know, I I don't I haven't gotten your thoughts on polyester yet, but I'm I'm getting a vibe here. Uh so I appreciate uh, you sticking it out per Todd. Uh, Todd knows yeah. I'm right. That's what's fun about this. Uh <laughs> let's there's just a few more here. Here's Rob uh who says one star. Okay, this movie was just bad. So bad, I had to get a thesaurus to adequately communicate the stench. A stench so foul, I still have my windows open to clear the air, even though it's 14 degrees out tonight when I write this review. Abominable. Amiss. Atrocious. Awful. Bad news. Beastly. Black. Bottom out. Bummer. Careless. Cheap. Cheesy. Crappy. Cruddy. Crummy. Defective. Deficient. Diddly, dissatisfactory, downer, dreadful, garbage, god-awful, gross, grungy, icky, inadequate, inferior, junky, lousy, not good, off, poor, raunchy, rough, sad, scuzzy, sleazeball, sleazy, slip, slipshod, stinking, substandard, synthetic, the pit. I don't know. Maybe I'm understanding it. I feel like John Waters would love that review. I'll be honest. <laughs> Honestly. I think you're right. I should have saved that for last. He's not the guy, but that's the last one. That's uh, those, that's the last those one. are the people that need an app this time around. Well, let's talk about it, guys. I mean, I'll, first of all, personally, before I let you guys talk, because I'm already getting, like I said, I'm getting a vibe. Uh, <laughs> I think polyester is a lot of fun. I think it's a ton of fun. Uh, it's a it's a clear jump in quality for Waters from a you know from a purely technical st- aspect. I don't think even people who dislike the movie can argue that. I mean, for the first time, this looks and feels like a real movie. You know, like it's got real production value. Uh, it also looks great. I think. I think the cinematography looks really good in this. Uh, one of the aspects of the movie that I really enjoy is how it showcases the different types of movies that Waters is influenced by. You know, in, in past episodes on this series, we've mentioned how Waters is, he's a fan of both art house cinema and exploitation cinema. How, you know, when he was young, he would take trips to New York and he would watch, you know, uh, movies by Fellini or, or Bergman. Uh, but he would also go to the drive-in and watch the latest Herschel Gordon Lewis gore fest. Like those are, that's kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum, but both ends of the spectrum are influential to John Waters But most of the movies that we've discussed so far, I think the exploitation influence has been a lot more apparent, you know, Uh, and not not that this feels like a Fellini movie by any means. But with Polyester, I I think the variety of his influence are a a little more clear because Polyester is uh, clearly influenced by the lush technicolor melodramas of Douglas Sirk. 
both in content and in the cinematography, like those splashes of light and shadow that you get throughout this movie. Uh, that's 100% Douglas Sirk, what he's doing there. Mm-hmm. But also you've got this Odorama gimmick, which reeks of the type of stunts pulled by uh, B-movie producer William Castle, who we've talked a little bit about on, on this series already because John Waters has talked about how he's a fan of, of William Castle's gimmicks. Uh, I think you're kind of getting the best of both worlds here. You're getting a, a you know a 50s melodrama uh, created by one of a guy who is now considered one of our great directors, and you're getting just gimmicky exploitation stuff on the other side of things. So what did you guys, as your first viewing on this, what did the two of you think about Waters kind of inching towards the mainstream? From the from the cold open with uh, Dr. Uh, Quackenshaw. Quackenshaw, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and the opening title sequence, uh, it is very apparent that, yeah, it takes a jump in quality. And I think that does make it, for anyone trying to go into this movie cold and, you know, try to get um, just sort of a baseline reaction to the film, I think it makes it easier to, I think it makes it easier for some of the weirder things in John Waters movies. If it's, if you're not having to sort of wade through artistic or maybe lack of, technical prowess yeah. that he did earlier in his career mm-hmm. um it, it this is this is the first movie in this series to get a genuine belly laugh out of me yeah what part and i do you want to guess because <laughs> it's weird no. yeah no, okay tell me <laughs> the 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 part that really got me and i don't know why is when the the suicide note of the dog, uh, yeah, <laughs> and showing the dog hanging there. <laughs> I don't know why that hit me so funny. It's funny. Jennifer you know, had yeah. left and she walked back in like right after that scene. I was like, oh man, you just missed the dead dog in this movie. <laughs> she was like, what? She was the like, way Did that he John- really kill a dog? I was like, no, he killed himself. <laughs> the dog, yeah, the dog committed suicide. The, the way John Waters actually tells a story about that, uh, where the way that was a real dog, and they had a vet come in and give him like a local uh, anesthetic, yeah. and, the, and the the vet was like, he'll probably be fine and wake back up. Jesus, <laughs> what? That's worse than I thought. What? No, they they just they, they basically just knocked the they knocked the dog out like you would if you were giving it a surgery or something. And they obviously mm. it was not really hanging by a noose. They had like a harness thing harness, hanging yeah. that it was that was I attached did see to. It and I was so like, the, the dog was perfectly fine and woke up afterwards and was was totally. See, fine. I thought it was fake, and uh, yeah. and I guess I must have walked out near that part of the commentary. So because I was I was just like, man, that's a really <laughs> good looking fake dog they got there. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, surely dog. they didn't kill a dog. I know they no, didn't they, kill they didn't dog. kill him. They just gave him a nap. <laughs> that dog needed a nap. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, uh, but uh, go on, anyways, the, the rest, uh, you know, the rest, the rest of it, I actually, I, I this would be my favorite of the series. I, okay. I think it was a lot of fun. I feel like the, I feel like the story and the narrative were a little more comprehensive or maybe, maybe uh, reduced in complexity down yeah. to like, Hey, there's a story about this family and it's, yeah. it's a weird, it's a weird messed up family. And I think but they even say forward. 
Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, Dr. Quackenshaw says something in his uh, in his little intro there in the cold open about some things just stink. And I was like, yeah, like life, life just stinks or something. Yeah, life, life just stinks. Stink. I was like, I have a feeling that's going to be the reoccurring motif with this film. And yeah, it yeah. kind of is. Yeah, and yeah, when, is. You, when you kind of put everything out on Front Street, you kind of know like, okay, this is maybe things are going to look up at some point, which they do. And yeah. then things come Eventually. crashing down. Like, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, I've not made it a secret that these have not been my favorite movies that we've ever covered. But I think this one is definitely... It, this this might be the film that I would recommend to somebody who's never seen a John Waters movie because I think it's early enough in his career, but it's more accessible to yeah. someone who would consider themselves an average movie goer or average yeah, movie viewer. I would agree with that because I, I think a lot of people would try to say Hairspray. Uh, because that's his biggest like mainstream hit, but I feel like that's almost setting your your expectations uh, incorrectly. Because yeah, if you if because yeah. if you saw Hairspray and then you went back and watched Female Trouble, that's you're gonna get whiplash, you know. Right. Whereas yeah, this exactly. one, even though it's it's definitely far more mainstream and straightforward and palatable to to ma mainstream audiences than his earlier films, it's not quite as polished as hairspray uh right. and, and certainly not as like as not appealing to mass audiences as, as hairspray is nor are any of his movies after hairspray honestly so yeah if i were going to recommend somebody who's never seen a john waters movie i wouldn't say hairspray because then nothing else is going to like everything else is going to seem pretty fucked up compared to hairspray but i would <laughs> i would say this i i would honestly say this or serial mom i think those are the ones that are like a good little bit of the the trashy side of john waters and a little bit of his ability to make stuff for mass audiences you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah 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 so i would agree with that so gary what did you think sounds like todd was a lot kinder than i was expecting so yeah uh, <laughs> <sighs> it's tough i did not expect todd to be that kind to it so that threw me off a little bit uh you reevaluating your own thoughts well, no, no, I, I still have the same thoughts, which are that I try to keep an open mind here because, for instance, I didn't love Rocky Horror Picture Show the first time I saw Rocky Horror. And this felt like that kind of thing, which obviously involved like in the production and everything was the same guy who helped that along. But it, mm -hmm. it felt like a gimmicky movie that you'd watch in a crowd. You got the scratch and sniff thing and like blah, blah, blah. If it, it feels like the other John Waters movies that you could enjoy it in a crowd, I felt ambivalent to it the first time through. Like I just and and, and the the only other time I've watched it now is with commentary. So uh, it it just I think it's funny in certain parts. I don't think it's amazing. I don't like I I just feel whatever about it. I think I think as far as cinematography. Obviously, somebody else took over the camera. It looks great, yeah. and it, it it looks uh it looks like you've been saying a, a real movie. Um, it feels that way. I I judged it as a real movie, and I don't think uh, for me like this like it, it flows very well. Like in certain parts, there's like some weirdness to it, which on one hand I expect from John Waters, but I'm like, okay, now this is supposed to be a mainstream movie. Well, it doesn't. 
I don't like it's weird. Like that whole last act of the movie, like felt like I was confused by it. Not like confused, like I don't know what's going on, but confused, like is this supposed to be a dream? Like what's happening right now? Like what? Mm-hmm. I don't know where, where was, like Todd and the mom like turned on her and all that. that yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. I was like, is this real? Like what's happening here? How did this just suddenly happen? Like this yeah. is yeah. just. It just feels out of nowhere. It's just like it, uh, it does come along thing. pretty kind of quickly, and that that could par- partially be to due to John's insistence that he be that his movie's less than ninety minutes. You know what I mean? It, it, it could <laughs> right. be because of that. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's not like I hate it or anything. I don't feel strongly. Well, either way about it, honestly, like I I don't I I don't care. Like I I don't hate it and I don't love it. It's just it's kind of middle of the road for me. I'll explain. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we keep calling this like, you know, John Waters breakthrough of the mainstream. He's, we're not quite there yet, though. That's that's hairspray. Hairspray is his mainstream breakthrough. This is kind of like the the closest that he's been so far. But na- make no mistake, mm. just because I think John Waters is, quote unquote, lo- going legit doesn't mean that he's playing it safe. You know, uh, there's still some weird fucked up jokes here. He's just presenting them in a very different way and in a very different context. He's not trying to show you, he's not trying to gross you out necessarily, but he, he might be toning things down a little bit, but this is still every bit of John Waters movie. And I think it is just as biting a, 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 of a satire as anything that he's made before. Probably more so. This is probably as, as a satire, I think this probably works better than almost anything he's made female trouble might be my favorite in that regard uh but this one you know polyester in my opinion i think it hilariously skews suburban america in a way that his previous movies only kind of touched on um i only think in playing it a little more straight than he did on his previous films and i think the satire comes this kind of goes back to what you were saying todd uh I think that because he's playing it a little more straight and because he's not trying to like shock you necessarily, uh, at least not to the extent that he was in previous movies that I think that makes the satire come across a little bit more because it's not muddled behind a bunch of loud, like screaming and shock value stuff. So it's a little more clear what he, that, that he is definitely trying to satire suburbia, which also his previous films were all set. They were all urban Baltimore movie. So they were they were satirizing modern life, but not necessarily like this picket fence suburbia, you know? Right. I I also think like my favorite divine performance so far is still Female Trouble. I love Divine and Female Trouble. Divine and Female Trouble, to me, Female Trouble is like the quintessential divine performance. But I think Divine here is really good. I like just as an actress. I know I know some of those reviews you read talk about you know that, that there's not a good performance in the movie or whatever, but I I I don't agree with that. I do think that there are not good performances in the movie. I think that like the kid who plays Dexter is not particularly good, but I think he fits the movie, you know, if, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, but yeah. I think with Divine in particular really starts to show his range as an actor with this movie. Because this could not be further from the characters that he played in his other films. Uh, he's no longer a monster who d- describes her, her, herself as the filthiest person alive. On the cr- contrary, here uh, Francine is a suburban housewife who describes herself as a good Christian woman. 
<laughs> you know? So it's like very, very different. Um, mm. But of course, nothing, got- nothing, I, not, not to step on you here, but nothing I said, by the way, is about these actors because. Oh, I know. I, I, I was referring I, to I, the I, reviews. Well, yeah. I, I think I put it, I, I did agree with the one review that said, like, I like Divine more as, like, antagonizing humanity rather than being victimized by it. I mm-hmm. I do like that part. But D- Divine never misses a point, or never misses a mark on any point in this movie. Like, Divine no. is absolutely perfect. If anybody is, Divine is in this and movie. And you still get some of that same energy from Divine that you got from those movies during her, like, nervous breakdown at the end, yeah. you know, when she's like, she's like, uh, just losing it. And she starts making all these weird noises and things like that. Uh, you still get some of that same divine, but it's not just not till she's kind of broken at the end. But of course, you know, behind closed doors or, or behind picket fences or whatever, uh, we see in this movie, uh, what, you know, when go, going back to the talking about satire, you see in this movie that suburban life is still filled with hypocrisy and heartache and juvenile delinquency. You know, you've got kids who are doing drugs and uh, alcoholism and cheating husbands, pretty much everything that John Waters showed in his other movies in all the other uh, movies we talked about here uh, that were set either in downtown Baltimore or in fictional places like Mortville only here because it's because of where it's set, it's kind of hidden behind the veneer of normalcy and because mm. of that, I think that's I think that's why the satire works so well in this movie because it's he's saying that like you know just because you you're living in this fancy schmancy neighborhood just because you drive a nice car and you have a good job or all this other shit there's still that doesn't mean that you're not gonna have just like fucked up shit happening <laughs> behind those closed doors and granted yeah. this is not unique to john waters like plenty of people have made satires about suburban life but i think that makes i think it makes the satire more poignant here than it was in in pretty much any of his other movies i uh i i don't disagree that like i i understand that he's like targeting something i think that is a more mainstream subject uh for john waters which would be the suburban life thing but I don't know. You guys are talking. I, I get where you're coming from, but to me so far, I feel like we're in the midst of uh, merging into John Waters' second phase. Like there was like phase one where if I was going to yeah. be like, John Waters' phase one, you want to watch Female Trouble. Female Trouble is his best movie from mm-hmm. John Waters' phase one. Phase yeah. two, John Waters, I, I'm assuming or hoping right now that it's going to be Hairspray but we'll we'll see it's, uh, yeah yeah i mean depending on i mean your opinion but they're they're i i i like all of his movies that he makes after hairspray too but hairspray is definitely the one that appeals most to most people i would say and, and we'll discuss that further on our next episode I, and, and, and i and i just for the for the um fact that i feel like i'm i'm gonna be or am being a little hard on this movie i just want to say and this is kind of the, the rant, I guess, I, w- I was mentioning earlier. But I just want to say, the thing I've really started to love right now about John Waters is that even though I don't like everything he's doing, and I don't apparently appreciate his movies the way I should sometimes, uh, <laughs> he seems like the most genuine human being. Uh, and maybe the yeah. 
the best human being that we've talked about so far. Uh, of everyone we've talked about so far that we've covered on this show, I think he is the one that I would most want to just hang out with. Yeah, it's uh, even though I don't always vibe with every part of his filmmaking, I think, and I see this in a, a lot of review, reviews for the record, that it's almost impossible not to appreciate him. Like, yeah. He's the real deal, and he and he cares for humanity, which is something I respect on a personal level. Because, like, look, everybody says they care about people, but I tend to find. Uh, and sorry if this is too much of a tangent, but generally, no, no. People, generally people care for people in so much as when it's convenient for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to appreciate humans that look like you, that act like you, that believe the same shit you do, etc. cetera. Uh, what's truly a baller move from, from John Waters is when you don't give a damn about what anybody thinks and you, you just do you and like who you are. And, and, and then you grow and respect humanity, even when it seems weird to do so. Because like we live in like this really cynical time right now, I feel like, and it's easy to dismiss other human beings for any number of reasons. And I'm talking about think about you, like who you're dismissing right now and who you're not taking seriously. John Waters would still like be empathetic to those people. And mm. that's hard to do. Like this all this all comes about because I've been I've seen so many John Waters interviews now that when we're discussing how beautiful uh, or no, I'm sorry, what he's discussing, like how beautiful all the things in Baltimore are. Like mm-hmm. he loves Baltimore, but he loves it for the rats in the street to the weirdos right. that live there, et cetera. Yeah. The outcast, the, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's real because he, he's never left there. I mean, he's he kept a home there like his whole yeah. entire life. Uh, and one of those newsreel things, I think he even says like, no, I, I love it here. I love it here. I would never leave here. I could have left here a long time ago. And he's like, I want to be here, but, but, but he's like always like in, in different interviews I've read, he's like sitting and talking to people you wouldn't expect. Even when he disagrees with them, he's still there because he has these friends that are from all over the spectrum. Uh, And they even talk about that part, but when he talks about the beauty of humanity, you know, he means it because it's easy to Mm. think uh, it's easy to think like so-and-so actor or actresses, some beautiful person or whatever, but you know, John Waters is talking about, he's thinking of divide and Edith Massey and right. all these other people that don't fit this traditional mold of what that means uh, in Hollywood. And, and mm. he doesn't just say it. He like puts his money where his mouth is and he does it. He like yeah. puts those people in his he film. Puts he them lived in, it. And not just puts them in his films, but puts them in like the biggest roles in his films. Mm-hmm. I even saw an interview where he was talking about Tab Hunter and loving him. And even though he thought he was so weird because he's this gay guy who was, he said, very conservative, like voted for yeah. Reagan during voted this for time. Trump. Uh, voted for Trump and used mm-hmm. to apparently whisper it to John Waters like, I voted for him. I did it. And he said it would drive him <laughs> crazy. But he loved Tab Hunter and he was still friends with Tab Hunter. Like Regardless. Yeah. Buddies. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's one thing to talk a big game, but when it comes to people like living it, like it's yeah. hard to beat John Waters. I and agree. It's honestly it's inspiring to me because I like to think it's something I would want to try to do or I try to do. There was this interview I watched with a uh, for Salon, uh, where the late the 
the girl like says like you're I, I think you're like kind of a philosopher he like laughs it off and is like oh thanks uh but then they describe this philosophy of trashiness or something and he goes on to say yeah i have a quote from him. he says the politics of all my movies is the same which is mind your own business don't judge other people you don't know their whole story Wait till you heard that whole story. Then maybe you can figure out where people are coming from. Something causes everything. And I'm most fascinated by the subjects I don't understand. So there's no easy, the ones that there's no easy answer to that, that I'll never possibly understand. I'm always drawn to subject matter like that. And I like to bring my audience along with me to be a little surprised by it, made nervous by it. I never understand why people say, I like feel good stuff. I already feel good. I don't need a book to do that for me i like to go into the world that troubles me and amazes me and i like to think that maybe after i read that book maybe i understand it a little bit better hmm. uh, but that's not most people by the yeah, way a lot, very true. a lot of people have blind spots uh, absolutely this guy this guy was advocating for a 17 year old girl who participated in the manson crimes who he believed had already paid their price and been been rehabilitated and and i get it Man, a lot of people think they're like progressive, but they can be just as bloodthirsty as anybody else. And yeah. um, I don't know. On the other side of that boat, by the way, I love hearing him talk about Donald Trump because I don't know. I was listening to him in one interview. He's like, I don't think that guy knows what irony is. The Trump <laughs> library. What's in there? One book <laughs> you didn't write? <laughs> you know, he's never read anything. <laughs> it sounds like the only people he has a real problem with or when you get into like they ask the difference he was like he's full of bad taste like bad bad taste they're like well, what's the difference between good bad taste and bad bad taste and he was just like bad bad taste is being a rich dude and flaunting it in everybody's face that's not a real rich person he's like most people i know that are rich are kind of embarrassed about it and they yeah. just shut the fuck up <laughs> he's like he acts like a poor person who found their first 100 dollar bill Every <laughs> also john belushi he apparently has an issue with it. he apparently yeah. also has john belushi but uh i uh i don't know man i just i just really the more every time john Waters speaks i can't help but stop and listen and i love everything he says uh even i mean there's a reason that know. he's become so popular on the public speaking circuit and as a writer because you're not the only one that feels that way so I, I felt like I needed to get that out because, because I, I think whatever about polyester. <laughs> it's all right. But you love John Waters. But you love, but John, I love Waters John Waters. Waters. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would, I mean, if you haven't, Gary, I would highly recommend picking up some of his books. I mean, Shock Value is the first one. You know, that's the one that I use for a lot of uh, the research on, not on this episode, but on the previous episodes before this, because it was published before this movie came out. But uh, shock value is really good. Even on the chat, I mean, and not every chapter is necessarily about the movie. He's got one chapter that's just about how much he loves Baltimore. It's called Baltimore, the hairdo capital of the world, or something. I think is the name of the chapter. Um, <laughs> he's got a, a chapter about going to trials, like you know, murder trials, like we've talked about. But then he's got other books like Crackpot and Role Models and Mister Know It All. That's just him like talking about stuff, and none of them are necessarily about his movies. He'll mention his movies, but it's just his observations and opinions about things around him you know it's it's he's, he's mm. very he's a very good observer of humanity i would say yeah i think he really appreciates it i legitimately I do. do i think he loves all of it 
All, all aspects of it, yeah. I, I 100% agree. And I think that's why his movies do appeal to a lot of people, because they are, you know, all-encompassing, really. I mean, the, less so the earlier movies and the later ones, but he's not afraid to show the dirty side of things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really what this movie is about. It's about him showing the dirty side of what the, the things that most people that live in, like, a, a, a rich suburban neighborhood in Baltimore would want to hide from the rest of the world. In this movie, John Waters is showing it to you. I think that's why. Yeah, I think that's totally it. Like he, he, anything that's going to get you like your, your, uh, what's, I don't, I can't think of the words I'm looking for here, but just like to, to put you on guard, to make you defensive or like, this is mm-hmm. not okay. Like this is, I'm not interested in this segment of something. That's the part he wants to play with. Like that's the right. part he wants to like tiptoe into and like make you go on that trip and like see it and so i can appreciate that that by the way i do get is part of polyester like this satire of suburban life and it's not like uh some of these scenarios i mean there's not a baltimore foot stopper i assume but like certain i don't the alcoholic (laughs) uh suburban housewife i guarantee there are still this (laughs) <laughs> yeah and, and there are teenagers living in suburban households who are doing drugs and doing other fucked up stuff that their parents don't don't want the neighbors to know that they're doing you know right yeah uh the foot the, the foot stopper he, thing he, is he, just that's just like an exaggerated form of, sure just like the the girl who just constantly dances that's the part that got the laugh yeah. out of me is i was just always <laughs> she like is this funny. Is fucking stupid like what is she it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> like when she asked her do you have do you have a quarter to call to call me on the payphone? I sure do. And she just like thrust her pelvis at her. It's so funny. <laughs> and so also Mary Garlington, I should say Mary Garlington, who plays Lulu, and she hasn't really done anything else, but doesn't she kind of look like she could be related to Mary Vivian Pierce? Yeah, I was gonna I, I I meant to mention that earlier. Then I'm surprised that wasn't just Mary Vivian Pierce. I just feel like just maybe like Mary Vivian thing. Pierce was just too old for it by this point. Yeah. But yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like if this movie had been made 10 years earlier, that would have been Mary Vivian Pierce because she really looks like right. they, they could be like mother and daughter or like cousins or something, you know, mm-hmm. or like an older right. sister, younger sister kind of thing. Uh it's it's she really does resemble her, honestly. So polyester did okay financially it's kind of hard to come up with exact numbers because of the way its release was rolled out uh one number that i found said it made 1.2 million at the box office which on a you know a three hundred thousand dollar budget isn't too bad but it isn't making anyone rich especially when the extra expense of the uh, odorama cards uh, is factored in uh but it certainly wasn't a failure by any means uh, uh especially especially compared to you know desperate living mm-hmm. uh, but as it turned out you know hiring a, a name actor that nobody under the age of 50 remembers isn't the box office boost that New Line was hoping for. Uh, And even attaching Debbie Harry and Bill Murray's names to the film did very little to create any additional buzz for it. The biggest takeaway from Polyester is probably that it proved that Waters could do more than just niche midnight movies that appealed to the underground crowd. Polyester proved that Waters could create more accessible films that could reach wider audiences without losing his underground sensibility. Despite my rant, I do love that even still when mainstream audiences start latching on and like the, the critics still don't get it. Or like a lot of them. They, they, they keep asking him like in interviews, like, what's the message here? What are you going for? Um, <laughs> what's like this social, social message you're getting across? And he'll still say something like, uh, 
As far as having any socially redeeming value, I hope I don't have any. The only thing I want to be <laughs> is a negative role model for a new generation of bored youth. <laughs> nice. Well, as for Tab Hunter, uh, Polyester did actually end up boosting his career a little bit. Uh, after this film was released, he was offered the role of Mr. Stewart in Grease 2, uh, where he gets to sing a song called Reproduction that's full of double entendre. If you if you haven't seen Grease 2 in a long time, uh, you get to see Tab Hunter sing. And he, I think he's a substitute teacher in that. My wife uh, is weirdly a huge fan of Grease 2. So, so you know the song I'm talking about. about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, you know the song I'm talking about. Uh, Tab Hunter enjoyed working with Divine so much that when he got the chance to make a Western comedy called Lust in the Dust, he asked for Divine to be cast with him. He also asked for Edith Massey to be cast as a character named Big Ed. Uh, but Massey, unfortunately, died before filming began. Uh, although, if you watch the movie, and I did watch it this week, uh, it does feel like the role was written for her. There's a moment where Big Ed, because it's played by another like elderly lady who's very short, like Edith was. Um, and at the end, she even says, like, to I think she says it to Tab Hunter's character. She says, uh, call me Edna. And I feel like in the original version of that 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 they had conceived, she would have said, call me Edie or call me Edith in that scene, you know, because she's called Big Ed yeah. through the whole movie. Uh, it feels yeah. that way. Uh, Waters was actually offered the role of directing Lust in the Dust, but he passed it because he didn't write it and he didn't he doesn't direct anything that he doesn't write himself. Uh, instead, yeah. cult director Paul Bartel, who did Eating Raul and Death Race 2000, he, he was in Roger Corman's camp. He ended up helming the project. And uh, while the film was not a, a box office success, um, Divine's performance did get him really good reviews in that, which uh, made the film Divine's first major movie success outside of waters films yeah i uh i found this in my minimal research and was just like well this has to be my further viewing because i i'm sold i'm sold to watch it based on the uh tab and divine chemistry back and forth from polyester yeah but the idea of just kind of like hey you know tab hunter you know divine the two of them in a western like, in a western and, and yeah. tab hunter's doing like a like a clint eastwood man <laughs> with no name thing did you yeah. did you watch it did you did you have a I, chance to watch it it's on my list it's but i was just like I, I this is a recommendation for myself i'm just putting it yeah. out in the world of just like hey <laughs> well it's on and, um it's on tubi as of this recording for free to nice. watch so it's very easy to nice. find the, the transfer isn't great but you can you can watch it. You can also rent it at a bunch of places. It's it's actually very easy to find. Um, nice. But that would make a good further viewing. You're right. So is that your is that your official further viewing then, Todd? Yeah, because I mean, again, this is. I feel like of all the series that we've done, I feel like the John Waters stuff has been the most difficult for me to do further viewings. I feel like I've really had to reach for some of my picks, but um, yeah. Yeah, th this seems this seems kind of like a no brainer. Just like if you've if you've watched this, I think the next logical one is Lust in the Dust. Yeah, I mean this. I agree that the John Waters series has been a little tougher on the um, on the further viewing front. I for me as well. This episode, however, was a lot easier to me mm. uh, because mm. I mean Lust in the Dust is a very obvious like. Hey, you want to watch Tab Hunter and Divine team up again? Just a couple years later. And here you go. Also, yeah. Lust in the Dust is very funny and very weird because it's still, it's not John Waters weird, but it's still Paul Bartell weird. 
Uh, so it's, right. it's still an oddball movie. It's got like two or three musical numbers randomly in it. So it turns into a musical a couple of times. And um, it's it's got, uh, what's his name? Uh, Victor Silva, who's a character actor who you'd probably recognize. Uh, he's in it as, as one of the heavies. And I don't know, it's a really fun little weird movie. And I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, but also I would say my picks would be, I mean, if you want, this is kind of going back to my original concept for further viewing which is movies that would maybe further enhance your experience of watching this movie uh or okay. movies that like if you or movies that like if you enjoyed this movie by these artists then here's another one that you may not have seen like lust in the dust but um i would i would recommend tab hunter confidential it's a documentary about tab hunter's life it was based on his autobiography came out in Oh, gosh, I don't know, 2013, 2015, a couple, a few years before Tab Hunter passed away. He had passed away in 2018. It's a really great documentary. It's by the same, I, I've mentioned it a couple times, I think, on the pod, uh, on the series, but it's from the same guy who directed, Jeffrey Schwartz, who directed I Am Divine. So you could mm. actually watch a Divine documentary and a Tab Hunter documentary by the same, by the same director. But Tab Hunter Confidential is really good. Uh, it's a really great look at his life and career. Um, nice. You could also watch any, Douglas Sirk movie because John Waters is very clear that this was highly influenced by the work of Douglas Sirk. If you're going to watch one, I would say probably All That Heaven Allows. I haven't seen it in years. I saw it around the time that Far From Heaven came out because that was another very like heavily Douglas Sirk influenced movie. Um, or if you want to go thematically, like we've done on some episodes where you're watching another movie that is thematically similar, I would say another movie about how the facade of suburbia has some darkness hiding behind it. David Lynch's Blue Velvet would be a pretty good choice. Nice, nice. Decidedly less funny than <laughs> polyester. I, not entirely unfunny, but just... Not entirely unfunny, just, just but less. Less so. Less fart jokes, for sure. Somebody noted that in a review. Was it the Times? <laughs> <laughs> I forget if who only, it was. If only this had was the fart like, jokes of polyester. Li yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> all all props, <laughs> all props to the director. However, <laughs> so what do you got, Gary? What's your further viewing? Well, it's weird. Uh, all of those you gave were really good. I was trying to think outside of John Waters movies because, on one hand, it's like. It has been tough thinking of further viewing, but I think that's a sign that this is a really unique individual we're talking about. So there's nothing wrong right. with that. Like it's it's yeah. it's kind of cool that uh, it's hard to compare anyone to him. He's an auteur, and uh, yeah. so that's awesome. Uh, so so uh, initially, I would say if I were picking John Waters movies to pair with, it would be like Serial Mob or. Cry Baby, I think, works really yeah, well. Yeah, I think this. I think Serial uh, Mom would be a great pairing with this. Yeah, and uh, well, and I just say Cry Baby because I feel like the vibe is similar, like as far as like the time period and like the right. I don't know something about that part of it uh, works yeah. with it. Uh, when I tried to think outside the box, uh, I was thinking of weirdly uh, the Stepford Wives or the Burbs or don't worry darling <laughs> and so just like these like weird i don't know suburban like they they feel like suburban things but they're not quite i mean the, one of those is literally called the burbs so 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that would be actually be a really fun pairing the burbs with this movie. I love, I love the burbs so much. Have, have you guys seen this movie? The two, when I was searching around, I, uh, I kept seeing this pop up and, uh, I have never seen this movie. And, and there's a tweet here that I, I'd say that was just for this. And it said, if you're looking, John Waters, John Carpenter, and wet hot American summer had a baby. Its name is Greener Grass. Oh, dude, it's so fucking weird. <laughs> it is, and I've never greener, seen that movie. It is incredible. I mean, I love it. It is very, very strange. It is a very weird movie. Um, but mm. it's uh, the the lady who directed it. I think it's two ladies. I think two ladies directed it, and they also play yeah. the leads in it. But then, uh, like Beck Bennett from SNL is is one of the male leads in it it is a very strange little movie and i if you have not seen greener grass i would highly highly recommend it if you like just like surreal comedy uh it is <laughs> it is a weird weird little movie and it is so funny that tweet sold me on it when i was going through i saw it pop up a couple of times and then i saw that tweet and i was like i gotta save this because i gotta know because john waters john carpenter and wet heart american summer like i was yeah. like what what could this be well, after the success of Polyester, Waters began looking ahead to his follow-up, and he told multiple interviewers that it would be a movie where Divine played triplets, two women and a man, that's what he said, uh, building on kind of that gag and female trouble where Divine plays two characters, where he plays a man and a woman in one scene. Uh, he quickly yeah. abandoned or was maybe talked out of that idea when it was decided that it would be just too complicated to pull off. And instead, he spent the next few years focusing on Flamingos Forever, uh, the sequel to Pink Flamingos that we discussed at the end of our episode on that film. As we know, Flamingos Forever never came to be for a variety of reasons. But when that project fell apart, the only movie, by the way, uh, I should note that John Waters ever abandoned. Like, it was the only movie that he had tried to get made that never got made. Uh, pretty much everything else he was able to get done. Uh, but after that fell apart, he was able to fall back on that commercial idea that he had back in 1977 about a 15-year-old girl with pimples. Uh, but it would be another six years before that film, the film that sprung from that idea, made it to theaters, albeit in an updated form. That film, and the subject of our next episode, I'm sure you've guessed, is Hairspray. That salon interview that I was watching was so good. And it, it, it was the one that finally sealed the deal that I was just like, whatever he does, I love John Waters. But uh, it was it was from the time when his book, Make Trouble, had come out. And... Uh, and I think that sprung from like a commencement speech he gave. Um, yeah, make make and, trouble is like the the text of a commencement speech. Yeah, and uh, he talks about like in shock value, he's playing like one game and stuff like that. But he's like now he's like I, I learned a different game, which was like you go into the mainstream and if you think he's changed a lot going into this, like I, I disagree because he's one of the, one of his big things apparently in that book is that uh, they, they say the quote that they all loved the most was uh, learn to fuck things up beautifully. And <laughs> he talks about uh, fucking things up from the inside. And so that he was like causing chaos is one thing, but like sneaking in and becoming a part of the system and then fucking it up from within is a different thing. Uh, yeah. And he says, so, so, and he says, and I don't remember Hairspray that well. If I, I don't even know that I've seen anything but the musical version of it. So, uh, like, later on. Uh, but he talks about, he's like, this is what I stumbled into. It, that that 
he said hairspray is the most devious thing I've ever done. Hmm. And uh, he said, he's like, <laughs> I made a movie that people love. And uh, there's a love song that's going to be in it that uh, has been played in every public school since. And nobody noticed anything. Uh, so so I'm excited about it for, for that reason is because he mm-hmm. talks about it. He was like hairspray. He describes it as like being this thing where he just like, he's like, this is the thing you can do now. Because uh, he's talking about it in light of when, when they're discussing like certain things, like and they're, they're talking about Donald Trump or whatever. Because he's saying he's like, you know what happened? I think it was like right after the uh, Hillary and Trump thing. Uh, or like Hillary was in the election. He was like, if Hillary got elected, like he was like, once I would have been pissed off and they'd have been pissed off for like a week and then they'd have gone away. And he was like, but you know what? You did it too. He was like, Trump ended up winning an election. He's like, and people like uh, caused a scene for like a week and then you went away. Like, why would you do that? What does that change? That doesn't do anything. And he's like, but it's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to stay like uh, riled up about something. He's like, I think, the better way sometimes you get in the system you work your way in you, you you sneak in and like he's like i did this with hairspray i was a fucking trojan horse like you go in there and you just like bring up some things that people aren't ready for yet but you do it in yeah. a sneaky way so they're forced to talk about it and um i don't know i was i was just thinking about that and i was like i'm excited to see what 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 hairspray brings so that's interesting well that's it for this episode, fellas. Where can y'all be found on the internet? I am at This Is Gary Horde on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host This Is Pro Wrestling. This Is Pro Wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW Show on the socials. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance. And you can access their links in their bio. Follow us on at NWA. I'm still working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond as long as they behave. And I am Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram, uh, also on Letterboxd, Twitter, threads, all that stuff. Uh, I don't. I forgot about threads until just now. Uh, the, I the, show is, <laughs> the show is at cinema underscore shot on uh, all the socials as well. You can also check out all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and our merch at cinemashock.net. Uh, as always, like, rate, review, and share our show any way that you know how. Until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Oh, Johnny, you're too old to be a debutante. Just because you've inherited the keys doesn't mean that you're suddenly socially prominent. That film, the subject of our next episode, I'm sure that you have guessed by now, is harsh. Is harsh spray? Harsh spray. spray. John Waters and a bunch of pirates. <laughs> We're gonna sail these John Waters. <laughs> We're gonna discover harsh spray. <laughs> Jesus. All right, let's let me try that again. Really an important step on his road to becoming a uh, quote unquote, you know, respectable character actor.
Mm. So the other casting hurdle was to find. <laughs> Sorry, Gary laughing made me laugh. <laughs> Every now and then, when I pause between like these these paragraphs, just in case y'all have something to say, Todd, you have this thing where you you feel the need to fill the silence with just a huh, hmm, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that time it was the story. You don't. You don't have to make a noise if you don't have anything to say. It's fine. Sorry. <laughs> it's gonna get. That's gonna get edited out anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Good to know. 